with that, I, I believe I'm handing off to, to you, Luke, to, to set the, the stage and over to Bill. Yeah, so um, thanks, everybody, for joining um, the Cybersecurity uh, Market Outlook talk here and for 361 Firm. Um, and we appreciate everybody taking their time out. Uh, there's, there's a lot of topics here, a lot of great speakers, and we're looking forward to, to it. Uh, Mark, we're going to go to you for talking about the uh, – uh, I guess you already did 361 Firm, so you could talk about the Midwest Tour, and then I'll turn it over to – uh, Bill to introduce our keynote speaker, uh, Dr. Liu. Okay, well, if you give me, yeah, if you give me any time to talk about the Midwest, I'll take it. Um, I'm a kid from the Midwest, and uh, we've got an event coming up. I'll just flash it up here. Um, I think it's pretty special. Um, in some ways, it's the flyover zones that we like best. I'm from a small town in Ohio, and uh, I went to Denison and then Michigan, and uh, so we've got a tour that will hit, you know, the Chicago probably starts on the 22nd, and um, where we're going to go to an interesting racetrack and maybe a maybe a baseball game, then over to, to Detroit. The, in Chicago itself, there'll be uh, I think cybersecurity will be one of the themes and the breakouts. Uh, then over certainly cannabis and healthcare and Detroit. A uh, little uh, really interesting emerging market itself, Ann Arbor, where we're going to talk about tech transfer, uh, one of the best R&D programs in the in the country world. Then down to if, stick around for a football game if you want. Jim Harbaugh is going to be talking, uh, meeting us for a half an hour. Uh, we can go to a Reds game. Before that, we see the whole venture community of Cincinnati. Over to Granville, where I, which is my home in Denison, and we're going to talk about. Uh, inclusion uh, and mentoring uh, there, and then what's happening with Midwest as this great emerging market. Then Columbus Industries, asset classes, with a lot of the allocators, funds, and companies up to Cleveland, Innovation Center, um, Nottingham Spurk, uh, into the downtown area for a uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I, was, I practiced law in Cleveland for three years. Pittsburgh, these are all like two two hours away, which is great. Pittsburgh, Carnegie Mellon, more innovation, more cyber, um, and not just, you know, the industrial heartland. And then up to Buffalo and Niagara Falls, Toronto. Uh, again, protocols notwithstanding, very excited. Um, we, if you want to find out more, it's our, uh, 361firm.com forward slash MIDW. So. I would like to, uh, throw in there, Mark, the two things we, also, I, 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 you know, from my end, emphasizing about the tour. One, reemphasizing what you said about this idea that the, the Midwest is more than just the industrial heartland. There's a lot of diverse talent here, and I don't mean diverse, you know, from the, you know, demographic side. I mean diverse in terms of the types of talent and different things that the people are into. A lot of tech talent here in the Midwest that is being underutilized, right? Absolutely. Second one would also be the not just Midwest, but you know we're I'm into this idea of Great Lakes, right? Which is why I was really excited to see Toronto on the tour, right? Because the Great Lakes also extends on the other side of the lake to Canada. So you know I'm I'm like how you say number one fanboy about about how the tour 
has okay. uh, been, uh, Great. you know, growing and developing, right? Well, and, and along this, you'll see all those, all the industries and cybersecurity being one of them. This is a co-leadership uh, platform. So as you see things and you want to participate, um, you know, we do these deep dives and think of it like deep dives on steroids when you come to us in the Midwest. Uh, it's going to be great. And, and by the way, with reshoring on, and people, uh, you're going to see unemployment levels in the Midwest, uh, coming down and people actually moving back. It's already happening. So, uh, it's way too expensive here in New York. Way too expensive. Uh, it doesn't need to be like this. Uh, even though it's, I love New York. All right. Back over to you, uh, Bill. Do you want to set the stage? Sure. Sure. Well, it's, uh, it, it is my great pleasure, uh, to introduce, uh, our, our keynote speaker today, Dr. Jim Liu. I count Jim as a, as a good friend and esteemed colleague. Uh, we, we ran into each other many years ago, but, uh, but currently, uh, Jim is an associate professor at, uh, at, in finance at Johns Hopkins Carey Business School. He has been involved in all kinds of leading edge technologies from AI, analytics, blockchain, crypto, and now cybersecurity. And I always say, if, if you want to know where the puck's going, just look for Jim's footsteps because he, he will have already been there. But um, previously, we, we actually met when he was at the World Bank and doing great things there. Subsequently, he was at Carlisle, Campbell and Company, Morgan Stanley, and uh, you know now is is uh, has has been at uh, John Hopkins, you know for for quite some time. So again, it's a real honest pleasure uh, to introduce him as our keynote for uh, for the cybersecurity deep dive. And Jim, I'll I'll pass the baton over to you. Great to see you, by the way. Hey, thanks, Bill. Well, for full disclosure, I learned a ton of stuff from Bill about the hedge fund industry, how to invest in hedge funds, uh, how to sort of network and build your deal flow and many, many other things, uh, and also how to stay away from fraudulent managers. So I appreciate that, Bill. <laughs> so thank you very much. Uh, luckily, I didn't get any investments in the World Bank or the Carlyle Group into, you know, some of those bad managers, but I, 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 it's great to see you. Um, Congrats on your new um, thing. Love to catch up with you. Um, Mark and Luke, uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak here. Uh, so what I'm going to do here is uh, sort of talk about, let me see if I can share my screen. Let's go for this. All right. How are we doing? Can you guys see that? Yep. Perfect. All right. Perfect. So, you know, there's a lot of topics here, cyber, AI, cryptos, and blockchains. And I'm going to try to summarize this and make it sort of digestible for everybody. And you don't have to be an AI or blockchains uh, expert. Uh, so the idea here is whenever you give a presentation, especially at the business school, you want to try to put in some Marvel characters <laughs> just for fun. I'm going to level set this hype uh, cycle using sort of Gartner's, um, you know, curve. We're going to try to understand cyber, AI, cryptos, and blockchains in the order. And then we're going to sort of think about, I'm going to share some of my views, how you can combine these things and where that could lead to some um, opportunities. I call that cyber 2.0, but basically it's a combination of AI and cyber and blockchains and cyber. And I'll give you a couple of ideas that I'm thinking about um, and also a confidence level because some of the stuff that I'm going to propose, you know, <laughs> it's still early stage. 
So, you know, just as reviewing this for everyone, um, with any technology, there's a maturity level, there's an initial trigger, and then there's a peak of inflated expectations. That's when everybody gets really excited and people in the classroom start, you know, really wanting to push forward. But some of this stuff is early. And I, as I learned over my career, if you're smart, you're usually too early. <laughs> so you don't have to move so quickly. You can slow down and wait for, you know, 50% penetration, as Steve Jobs used to say, before entering that industry. So, you know, a lot of students at the business school at Johns Hopkins are smart, so they tend to be a little bit early, and um, they get all excited. I'm like, okay, slow down, slow down. <laughs> you want to make a business, right? So you got to slow yourself down and just wait until sort of the, the market is ready. And then there's a trout uh, of disillusionment, a slope of enlightenment, and then the plateau of productivity. So what we're going to do here is we're going to look at blockchains first, right? And this is, we don't, we're not going to go through all these dots, but the idea is that blockchains, and I put cryptos in there, is kind of at the innovation trigger level and sort of at this peak. That's where it's at right now. So we have a lot of time in blockchains. So if you're thinking about making some investments in these uh, blockchains, you're, you're not going to miss anything. <laughs> you're going to see it happen right before your eyes. So, you know, no need to rush into this. Um, for AI, however, we're kind of here already, right? Meaning that AI is cooked into the stuff that we're doing. Look at your Alexa, look at your Siri, look at your, uh, some of you guys probably have some Teslas. Look at all that stuff. It's starting to be inside um, for consumers, the retail uh, folks, right? We're interacting with technology and AI even right now. So that's uh, sort of at the peak. Uh, and then cybersecurity has been cooked up ever since the Internet came out and was pervasively around. And what do I mean by cyber? It's a broad category, endpoint security, cloud security, security operations, network security, and so forth, right? So that has been around for a long time. So that's baked in. And what I want to sort of you guys to sort of think about is this idea where blockchains and crypto is a little bit early, right? And then AI is kind of starting to make its way in. And cyber has been developed really well. Now, how can you use blockchains, that technology, into the cyber sort of realm? How can you use AI into the cyber realm? But before we go into some of the thoughts, uh, I just want to, like, just make sure that everybody's on the same uh, level and level set the understanding of AI. And so what is AI? I think the best way to explain this, at least to MBA students, is showing them this graph. The artificial intelligence has been around since the 1950s. It's all AI. And only recently have we seen it sort of go into machine learning. And this has to do with the Internet and emails and spam and not spam and A-B testing and so forth. And when you think about that development, there's a lot of data. And now we can find patterns within this data. And some of the patterns are structured and unstructured. One of the most famous unstructured, uh, supervised unstructured, uh, uh, unsupervised learning projects was looking at all the pictures on the Internet. And lo and behold, it's pictures of people and pictures of cats. So, you know, I don't know if anybody is a cat lover out there, but you guys are flooding the Internet with your pictures of your cats. So you should be proud of yourself because if Martians ever come down and they try to understand our society, they would think that cats are very important, which, you know, arguably are. Right. Uh, the other thing to also think about in this technology sort of, you know, history is there are actually people here. And, um, you know, there have been periods where there was uh, sort of an AI winter. And what do you mean by that? That's where the technology was moving and moving along pretty rapidly until, um, you know, Minsky at MIT said AI is great, but it can't solve this problem. And it's the XOR problem. Basically, you're trying to separate, you know, two clusters 
and you cannot separate it unless you use a nonlinear separator. And so, you know, in the early days, the perceptron and logistic regression was a linear separator, and the innovation was let's stack these perceptrons on top of each other and create a neural network structure and allow for nonlinearity in order to separate, you know, sort of these nonlinear patterns. And that's something that I think is a really important innovation in, in addition to the fact that a lot more data was there and computational power is becoming stronger and stronger. And now you correspond that with the Internet where we have a tremendous amount of data on users. Now we can come up with some really interesting patterns in order to make predictions. Unfortunately, early, earlier it was about how to uh, predict if a person is going to push a button, right, <laughs> or push an ad. And, um, you know, so, you know, arguably that wasn't necessarily the best use of all this technology and time. But nonetheless, um, that sort of pushed uh, forth this industry of machine learning. Right. OK. And then the other thing I want to talk about more recently is how much innovation is coming out here. This is a tremendous this is from the 1970s, even to, to, to uh, 2020. Uh, there's so many things that are coming out. It's really difficult and it's mind-boggling. You know, how do you incorporate all of this stuff? And we're in the business school at Johns Hopkins. When I'm teaching the class, I teach the big data machine learning class. I'm trying to pick and choose which one of these we should teach that's the most useful for students, right? And in particular, what I want to highlight is one component of – there's tremendous amounts of AI and machine learning, but I'm going to focus our, the conversation – in on something called natural language processing. So there's natural language processing and natural language understanding. And uh, some of that has sort of come to the forefront. And the reason why I want us to focus on that is because I think that this transformer technology, which I'll review a little bit, is very important, not only in healthcare, we're seeing the opportunities there, but also in cybersecurity. And I'm going to make that link in a second here. But just to understand that uh, natural language processing, some of the innovations were the long short-term memory, LSTM, which took into account the time series nature or the ordering of the words. And that is 1997, so relatively sort of recent. In 2013, there was this really nice innovation that happened, and it was called word to vac and basically, if you think of words in a vector space, you know, you, you have a vector pointing to king and you have a vector pointing to man. And if you take the king and you subtract off the vector of man and you put that on the vector of a woman, it points to queen, right? So people were just really excited and fascinated about this word to vector. This happened in 2013, by the way. So that was relatively recently. And then they pushed forward into um, the, the bidirectional encoder representation of transformers, which was known as BERT. And, and then they push this even forward into GPT-3. So for those who are, you know, the cutting edge of natural language processing or understanding is GPT-3. Um, this has 175 billion parameters, so you need a large system in order to sort of use this. But the key innovation here is the transformers and the um, paying attention to detail. And the reason why I bring this up is that just in uh, the last quarter, we've seen something called AlphaFold. So I just want to, you know, bring this to your guys' attention. AlphaFold is this really nice technique that um, is has to do with um, understanding the three-dimensional nature of the objects of proteins. But just to back up, the input is a bead of amino acids. So think of it as a necklace, and in each one of these beads, you can put one of 20 amino acids and you string them along and that's the input. So yeah, that's like a vector, right? And you put a vector in and you process it and you're trying to predict what kind of um, uh, form this is going to take in a three-dimensional space. Now, right now, there's about 200 million important shapes. 
And we haven't even scratched the surface to understand that mapping, right? And this is where AI sort of comes in. Before, they used to use convolutional neural networks, but the real innovation has to be when they're, com- they're coming back with the transformers. So think GPT or BERT, right? And, um, you know, this, this is starting to open up this really interesting disruption in healthcare. And I think you'll see something in about, you know, maybe two or three years where you're, this is actually influencing um, healthcare uh, procedures and companies and so forth. But um, I just wanted to sh- share that with you guys. Um, you know, for blockchains, this is relatively recent, 2008, 2009. That's when we had, you know, Satoshi, which is a group of uh, people. We don't know exactly who that person is, but, you know, that was the first Bitcoin was a use case. From there, we had the innovation of um, uh, smart contracts. Uh, the most popular ones was Ethereum. From Ethereum, that platform, we launched a lot of ICOs. Unfortunately, a lot of that stuff was just nonsense, right, and gave the whole cryptos a bad sort of taste, especially early investors. But now we're at a point where with these smart contract platforms are competing against each other. So we have Ethereum, we have a Binance Chain, we have a Cardano, and we have Polkadot. We don't know which one's going to be the most dominant player because we're still in the early days. Uh, when I talk to students about this, they get very excited, but I tell them we're kind of in 92, 93 with email. <laughs> yes, we can push digital value around the Internet, which is great. But, you know, who's going to be the winner? Is it going to be AOL or, you know, is there, a, is there going to be a Google, Amazon sort of later on that's going to be launched? And the other thing I try to remind students is that you're probably early here. <laughs> so you can take your time and you'll definitely see sort of what works, right? But um, I, I think what's really interesting here, especially for finance uh, people with finance degrees and finance professionals, is the DeFi, which is basically functionalities that we used to all sort of do in investment banks, pulling out and then giving it to the community. But the other thing that I, I think it is important to understand, at least one of the lessons that we've learned, is the distributed nature. That's very important, right? So a lot of people try to do um, permission networks, and that didn't really work. So leveraging the network, the people on the network, the innovation on the edges of the network, I think that's the the, the real benefit of blockchains. Okay, so here's uh, – I'm going to throw out a couple of ideas. And, you know, how can AI improve cyber? So, you know, just as uh, there's this, this famous quote, you know, in the early of the early stages of GPT-3, a word is characterized by the company it keeps. So understanding the words around that word in the sentence help us understand, uh, you know, the, the, the context of the word, where it's used, and so forth. Um, for 3D proteins, we're starting to see this right now. 3D protein shapes are constructed by amino acids, which are characterized by the company they keep. So those amino acids at the very initial input, right, in a vector, it's important to know what is surrounding those each one of those amino acids in that chain, right? And then for cybersecurity, you can take that sort of parallel, uh, you know, uh, advancements, right? And so think about cyber attacks, right? They're characterized by certain codes, right? So can we understand the code about what is around that code? How does it behave? Try to figure out, you know, certain sort of attack vectors that are similar and then protect our systems according to those vectors, right? And we'll probably use some kind of transformation um, uh, technology. So that's one thing, you know, transformers and attention to code is all that you need just to give you, um, you know, some idea. So this one, I'm, I'm pretty confident the transformer is going to really, and AI is already uh, disrupting the, the cyber world for protection and probably, you know, eight, um, you know, offense or defense. Let's talk more on uh, defense in this particular time. But, you know, th- this stuff I think will uh, sort of play out. I would be surprised if it did not because 
it parallels the other two pretty well. The one that I'm less confident in is sort of, you know, how, um, you know, blockchains are going to improve cybersecurity, right? And there's a couple of ideas here that I think it's interesting to understand. One, I think zero trust is, you know, we're starting to see that in the government, right? You know, the zero trust inside the perimeter and outside the perimeter. That totally makes sense to me, right? Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some kind of national networks sort of set up so that, you know, you're, you, you, they know, the government knows who you are and maybe you say, hey, look, I was uh, cyber attacked. This is what happened to me. And then there's a repository that's shared across the United States, across agencies in order to better understand, you know, how cybersecurity, you know, the attacks are working and then create some kind of sort of ways to, um, you know, maybe crowdsource or citizen cyber scientists, right, coming up with some solutions in order to protect these things. So that, w- that wouldn't surprise me. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the final thing to sort of think about is, I think the power of blockchains, even in the cyber world, is going to be this notion of a network, but it's very sharing with information, right? So anybody who's part of the network can create something innovative. Maybe it's a cyber solution, but then share that with the rest of the uh, participants on the network, right? And so, you know, that component of blockchain, we haven't seen anyone really use it, you know, substantially like an AOL or Google or so forth, but people are trying to do that. Um, I've seen a lot of um, pitches and presentations, and um, I, I don't think we're quite there yet. And if anybody has, uh, you know, some thoughts, I'd love to, you know, uh, learn from you guys as well. So with that, you know, um, that's it. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. My only ask, you know, is um, I'm working with a couple of professors and doctors, and we're trying to solve brain cancer. So if you know anybody who's in that family office space that has that kind of appetite, Love to meet them. But with that, I'll stop and turn it back over to Bill. Bill? Jim, we have a few of those people, so let's talk offline. Okay, perfect. Thank you. So, Dr. Liu, one question that I have, since we have a little bit of time, um, um, can you talk a little bit, just a few minutes, on um, the difference between AI and automation? Because that's real important, because we're getting in the territory where um, a lot of them – the, the products that are coming out in just uh, any space with AI is uh, claiming AI, but what is the distinction between it for investors to understand? Absolutely. That's a great point, Luke. So, you know, you have this term called robotic process automation, and what does that mean? So you wake up in the morning, you open up your email, and you, you open certain things up, and you're looking for keywords because maybe it's an email from Luke, and i got to pay attention to that, and I want to put Luke in a certain folder, right? And, and maybe there's a there's a person that I don't want to sort of correspond. It's a student angry about their grades, right? So I put them in a different folder, right? So every morning I wake up, I look at my email. It's the same procedure that I'm going to put Luke over here because he's important. I want to read his emails and uh, return a thoughtful response. There's all these gazillion students complaining about their grades, right? <laughs> and so I do this. Now, there's not a lot of intelligence there, right? It's just kind of robotic. It's like an algorithm. If from Luke put here, else, you know, if it's a student complaining about grades, do this other thing. So robotic process automation is basically kind of rule-based, right? But it's mechanical rules. And, uh, you know, that should not be confused with AI, okay? So artificial intelligence has to do with finding patterns in data, right? And then reacting to those patterns in data. So one example is um, your spam filter, right? 
at a certain point in time, spam was defined as, you know, buy, buy, buy or whatever it is. But over time, they got more sophisticated, right? The AI would be able to adjust to that level of sophistication, right? Whereas a robotic process automation would still be looking for the large capital buy, buy, buy signs, right? And it wouldn't be as fluid in terms of being able to adjust itself over time. So that's one of the ways that I think about it. But a lot of people sort of, even in the government, right, when we're responding to RFPs, they put that together, they say we're looking for robotic process automation and AI. And, you know, it's important to distinguish them. Some companies that do uh, robotic process automation very well is UiPath is an example, right? And then another company that does more of the machine learning type stuff well is uh, Data Robot, right? And so understanding the distinction between something that's sort of, you know, think of, think of it as uh, something that you can repeat over and over again, right? Um, that's robotic process automation, and then something that is a little bit more fluid and it can adjust itself over time. You know, for for example, a chatbot, if you do it correctly with the GPT-3 engine inside of it, you can have a nice conversation with it, and then you could take it in certain directions, right? That was one of the things that we did for the um, Veterans Administration National Artificial Intelligence. You know, we won this nice award here uh, because we built a chatbot that could interact with veterans. It was a prototype. That the idea is that you could not have done that with um, an RPA or a robot process automation because it wouldn't feel as fluid. You would only be able to ask it certain questions, and it would be like an if-then uh, tree structure, right? Whereas, you know, the way that we behave, uh, maybe you can think of AI can create technology that uh, can possibly fool, you know, um, participants, meaning that it passes the Turing test, whereas robotic process automation, when you're interacting with the RPA, you know almost instantaneously that this is formulaic, right? So, you know, I hope that that helps the distinction. Sure, Rob, go ahead. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Um, can you speak a little bit? You've got a cool background between private sector and then and then academia. Um, as far as education and sort of the next gen, um, either education here or, or incentives to get into the space, are you seeing that on the um, pretty consistent or are you seeing pretty volatile? Yeah. So, you know, guys, when I went to the business school, this was a long time ago, I went to Columbia and, you know, I learned Excel and some computer programming stuff. And Excel lasted me about 10 decades, maybe more on Wall Street. <laughs> so I didn't really have to retool myself at all, right? But now the technology is so pervasive. When I went back to, you know, teaching, you know, I sat in a, a machine learning class and I started learning some of these new skills. Now it's almost imperative that you go back and you learn the new technology. You learn how to use, you know, Google Colab and Python and R and all this other stuff. And also learning the cybersecurity side, because that's all about technology, too. There's a tremendous demand for cybersecurity analysts in the government. They can't even meet the – they can't even find the bodies or the engineers. And so I think, you know, it, it, it sort of opens up this question about can we nearshore? What does that mean? Let's go knock on the door of Canada and Mexico and say, hey, can you guys – can we get some of your engineers to come over here? Because we have so many opportunities here that we need that not only for cyber cybersecurity but also for machine learning AI. So just to answer your question, Rob, yeah, absolutely. I mean, for family offices and investors – you know, I, I think it would be well worth paying a little bit, just taking a cybersecurity course from, you know, some of the, the top institutions, just so that you can uh, protect yourself on mistakes that people make that are very, very uh, difficult. And, you know, for full disclosure, our company SoCat was working for a prime uh, company, 
and the Prime is a, a technology company, and they got you know sort of uh, ransomware. And so the, the subs were the sub, you know, they said, hey, you, look, you know, we think that there was an intrusion here. So just protect yourself a little bit and, you know, check with um, Equifax and all these other things, what's going on. So th- th- this has affected even us, even me. Right. Um, and I'm sure that at Johns Hopkins, that people try to infiltrate, you know, Hopkins systems all the time because healthcare data is even more valuable than, say, you know, um, other types of, you know, PII. Information. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if many of us in this room, we don't know it, but our, you know, social security numbers out there being traded around, right? Um, just because, you know, the internet, the infrastructure wasn't set up. It was, it was set up to be very open. Security wasn't the first sort of most important component, right? It was to get the message back and forth to make sure the message went across. We could have laid down a better protocol for, that was more secure, but then it would have been a little bit slower and all these other things that were happening. Some people argue that, you know, there should be a different sort of, quote, safer Internet. And, you know, some people who argue, I know we had a little discussion about China and the U.S. will the Internet bifurcate. Right. And I, I think, you know, we don't I don't know the answer to those things, but it's very interesting because at least in the United States, when we're trying to do the ICOs that were birthed out of the U.S., they're pretty <laughs> sincere. right? They're very sincere. But the ones overseas, uh, I don't know, you know, how that past mustard. But the other thing to remember on cryptos is who was investing in those ICOs. It wasn't like mom and dad who spent their whole life making $10 million and let's just put it all into one, you know, ICO. It was the guys who were mining Bitcoins or Ethereum early. They're sitting on hundreds of millions of sort of value and they're putting five or 10, whatever. But it wasn't like they had to, you know, um, the computer generated and mined it. It wasn't them putting their blood, sweat, and tears into a company over decades, right, and accumulating that wealth and instantly losing it, right? I, th- I think that's important to know. Yes. Sorry, Jim. It's Mark, Mark, I just step hey, in. Uh, Bills and uh, Luke, um, actually, we all would love to keep listening to you, <laughs> but we got some other speakers. So if you don't mind, we're going to transition, and we'll talk about the brain cancer thing uh, as well. Absolutely. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, everyone. Thanks a lot, everyone. Thank you. So back back to you, Luke or Bill. Keep it going. Or, or over to Stephen. So our next uh, our next speaker is actually uh, Stephen Burke uh, from ARS Investments. Uh, thanks, Luke. Could I get the uh, screen, Mark? Screen is yours. Thank you. Uh, as you know, I'm, I spend most of my time looking at the uh, macroeconomic stuff and not talking about stocks, but I am going to uh, touch on the public market view of cybersecurity and, uh, and a little bit on our perspective on that. So, uh, so I just want to share some, uh, an overview of some fast facts on the space, uh, look at some of the top ETFs and public companies and what's the message from that and then give you some closing, closing thoughts. So, and, the numbers are staggering, and the worldwide cybercrime is estimated to be six trillion this year. Um, you know, it, the attacks, uh, business falling uh, victim to ransomware every 11 seconds. Um, I thought this number from the McKinsey study that uh, people were expecting their uh, cyber budgets to be cut this year, 70% is a scary number. Um, when you look at the financial services area and healthcare being one, financial services the other in terms of uh, a lot of data and a lot of access, these numbers are staggering. 
that on average a financial services employee has access to 11 million files the day they walk in the door. And for larger organizations, that's uh, 20 million files open to all of them. Um, and the costs are, are growing and the time that uh, it takes to identify a breach and rectify are really quite long. So these are not, you know, day in, day out problems. These are systemic problems. And as Jim just was highlighting in his uh, great talk, you know, the healthcare space is ripe for, for cyber attacks. <clears throat> 93% of organizations experienced a data breach in the past three years. Uh, and the industry has lost an estimated 25 billion due to ransomware in 19. So this is a problem. And then on the other side, you have a labor situation. And, you know, if you want to help your young kids figure out a place to go, cyber is one of the areas that could create a great opportunity for you. It's, uh, no, no unemployment rate and, uh, 4 million open jobs right now. And they're expecting the, these, uh, cyber job related jobs to grow 31%. Uh, from 19 to 31, so it's a growth area. I want to take a look just quickly at, at some of the leading uh, ETFs in this space because they actually told me a couple different messages, and uh, we'll just share them with you. Uh, look at the top 10 holdings. This is the largest one, uh, cyber. It is not just um, cyber tech companies, but it gets into <laughs> software networking companies and other areas that are impacted by cyber. So uh, seeing Cisco and Accenture as the top two names is not what you would typically look for in this area. But I think the real issue here is, uh, you know, the P uh, earnings here. This is a fairly mature product with a P multiple of 80. Um, when you look at Hack, which is the second largest one, uh, you get a P multiple of 234 on the portfolio. Uh, and uh, not a not a great look there, um, but with an average market cap of 17 billion. And then when you go to Bug, which is one of the other uh, larger ones, um, and this really focuses more on uh, on kind of uh, companies that at least 50% of their revenues come from cyber-related activities, and a P of 30, 346. Um, I guess the message for us in and in, in the in this space is. Uh, it's a tough space for valuations, and uh, uh, it's also a hard space because uh, it's very similar to investing in biotechs, in, in my opinion. Uh, you look at Palo Alto, one of the best-known public uh, companies, and, you know, big market cap, big revenues, but a P multiple of 66. Uh, I, I should I should let you know someone on, is on from Palo Alto. Okay, and they can actually uh, put clarity on on this, uh, any of these areas that I, I need correction on. Another company that we invest in is called Tufin and, uh, Tufin is a, an interesting one and we've owned Palo Alto in the past, um, uh, as well. It's a great company. Um, Tufin is a very interesting one and it's kind of an off the radar one. It's, uh, Luke and I were talking before. It's not one that you typically see. What they do is, uh, basically, um, policy management for your uh, network security. And and really what they do is help companies that are in multiple regimes working with multiple vendors to create a uh, policy that allows them to uh, affect changes very quickly and efficiently across their entire network to provide protection. So it's really a firewall uh, rules-based system. Uh, again, it's got a uh, – uh, a very difficult price earnings because even though they have revenues, they're, they're not making a lot of money. Um, but this is an area we think is kind of a, a fundamental um, 
uh, role that has to be played in helping companies uh, build. We think this is a uh, a really undervalued company that um, it's around a $10 stock we think is can be worth uh, almost $35 in two to three years. Um, so there are big opportunities, but the problem in the public space, similar to a biotech, is either the technology works or it doesn't. You find out after the hack. So it's a tougher area to invest from from that perspective, and you have to size your uh, portfolio very, very carefully. So I guess for me, the message coming out of this on uh, on cyber is uh, in the public markets is tough place to invest, big returns, but big risks in there and big volatility in the name. So I think the public names in many cases are more like uh, venture and uh, and uh private equity deals than they are public companies, uh, even though they're publicly listed. I think you have to think about them with that kind of a longer term time horizon and uh, expect a lot of volatility in the movement. So, uh, Luke, I'll stop there and send it back to you. Okay. Thanks, uh, Stephen. Appreciate it. So our next um, our next um, uh, group session here is a, a panel discussion um, for some panel speakers. And uh, we have uh, panelist number one will be uh, Lucas Nelson from uh, partner from Lytical Ventures, and we also have uh, another panelist uh, Jason Gale, uh, managing partner of Cyber Capital Partners, and our other panelist is Mislav uh, uh, Talusic, uh, CIO from Compton Ventures and part of AIM13. Excellent. Should I go first, Luke? Um, Mark, can someone give them the slides? It's fine. I don't, I don't need slides. Uh, listen, uh, I'm going to, I've got about five minutes to explain to you why I think, uh, investing in early stage technology companies, venture capital is a really exciting and lucrative place to be investing. So, uh, I can do this without slides. Uh, yeah. my name is Lucas Nelson. Uh, I'm a partner at Lytical Ventures. We invest in what we call corporate intelligence, which is cybersecurity, data analytics, and AI. So, obviously, that's why we're here today. Um, what I want to talk about today is three reasons that this market is excellent for early stage. So, the first is, um, you know, it's a fast-growing market. Second is it rewards deep domain expertise. And the third thing is there's better exit dynamics uh, than other parts of that market. So, I'm going to go through each of those uh, in turn. Uh, but uh, just before I do that, one plug for Lytical Ventures. Um, as I said, early stage venture capital. So we invest in seed, series A, A prime, which essentially means we invest in companies doing 500,000 to 10 million in revenue. And we put in check sizes of half a million dollars to three and a half million dollars. Awesome. Okay. So it's a fast growing market. Uh, we've heard both from Professor Liu uh, and the last speaker about, you know, kind of the growth of this market. Um, economically speaking, it's growing at about a 25% uh, CAGR. So that's a, let's call it five to eight times the um, growth rate of the, the GDP at large. That's an excellent place to be investing. Um, the, the other piece is, well, why is that happening? Why, why are spends going up so much in cybersecurity? And it's because it, it's an existential part of every company these days. Uh, a few years ago, 10 years ago, you might not have thought of a meatpacking plant being shut down by a ransomware attack. But that's exactly what happened earlier this year. So every company has to spend on cybersecurity, and that's what's driving that growth rate. Uh, the third um, 
kind of tailwind here is a technology tailwind, and Professor Liu nailed it, uh, AI and ML. Uh, that uh, These new techniques, uh, anomaly detection, which is a lot of what cybersecurity really is, anomaly detection, uh, are driving out older technologies and allowing newer entrants to come in and supplant technologies that have been there for five or ten years. So those three reasons make it a really great time to do early stage investing in cybersecurity. Uh, the next thing I want to talk about is how it rewards deep domain expertise. So if you're going to invest in pre-public companies, you need to do basically three things. You need to find great deals, you need to win those deals, uh, and then you need to help those companies out. Uh, so for finding great deals, knowing a lot about the cybersecurity market helps you know where the puck is going. Uh, it helps you weed out real technology from smoke and mirrors. It's really hard to tell whether you know, a new cybersecurity solution um, is something novel and unique or is just you know, rehashed things that are warmed up and being fed to people again. Uh, turns out my background, for example, uh, I was a hacker. Uh, I broke into computers for a living as a penetration tester for the better part of a decade. And so that background really lets me know both is this technology real, but will CISOs, Chief Information Security Officers, buy that technology? Uh, so that's, that's, part, that's the first part. The second thing you need to do is win those deals. Uh, it turns out cybersecurity, though a big industry, has a small number of leaders. Uh, chief Information Security Officers, for example, all know each other. The investors in early stage all know each other. And so that can be a giant advantage to you when you're trying to invest in a market like this. Um, you can beat out uh, better known, better branded investors if your expertise is greater than theirs. Uh, an example is I, I was talking to a company recently uh, that had term sheets from a bunch of uh, different investors, and they actually knocked out a couple branding value investors you've heard of to allow investors like myself in because we knew their market so much better and we could make those introductions to CISOs that they wouldn't otherwise have. So that's, that's awesome for you as a smaller player to kind of elbow out the bigger guys. Um, finally, uh, you can affect your outcomes, right? So it's, it's a truism that companies are bought, not sold. And it's not always the, the you know, best company that's bought, but it's the one that's prepared. Uh, you know, the one whose cap table is correct, who has all their ducks in a row. Uh, and so you as an investor can really put your thumb on the scale and help your companies in that way. Uh, another thing is your network can be really, really valuable. So if you've got that deep domain expertise, you can introduce them to the CISOs at your companies, at the other places where you work. And those CISOs can become buyers of their software. And so that's really advantageous to you as an early stage investor. Um, so that's the, the, the second piece of why this is a great uh, market. The third and final piece is better exits. Uh, there are generally three reasons companies get bought uh, early stage. There are three ways to get bought. There's kind of an accu-hire. Uh, there's a, you know, being bought for your technology, and then you can become a public company in, in IPO. So um, both the previous uh, speakers talked about the, the lack of um, uh, resources, people, uh, in cybersecurity. There's between two and four million open jobs right now, and that means companies just can't hire people fast enough. So that's a great uh, kind of backstop for your smaller companies. A company that's taken five or ten million dollars in funding can easily be bought for that amount of money or more. Uh, you, as an early stage investor, get your money back. Uh, it's not a great win, but it does mean that your downside risk is really uh, is really mitigated. Second, uh, deep technology buyers. Uh, recently, we had a company called Wicker. Uh, they're a secure communications platform with heavy encryption. They were the only uh, communications platform like this that hadn't been hacked 
right? So think Signal or Telegram, uh, they'd never had a security incident. And we knew because of that in their large portfolio of IP that they were going to be attractive to somebody. Uh, it turns out they, they were attractive to Amazon. Amazon bought that company about a month ago. And so that's a great exit that shows that the value of that IP was worth way more to Amazon than a standalone company. Finally, uh, we've just heard about kind of the public markets. Uh, it's a great place to sell your private company to a public market. It's a great time. Uh, Sentinel One, which went uh, public last month, uh, is sitting at about 85 to 87 times next 12 months uh, projected revenue. So you get paid a lot uh, if, you're, if you can get a company that goes from kind of these early stages all the way through. Uh, so that makes the, the exit scenario, the downside risk is mitigated for you, and the upside is still just fantastic. So in conclusion, what makes the cybersecurity early stage market so uh, exciting and lucrative? Well, it's a really fast-growing market. Uh, it rewards your deep domain expertise. It rewards the work you put in. And the exit uh, profile is better than that of general early-stage venture capital. Um, so, Thank you, Douglas. Yep, that's my talk. Uh, please, I, I love this stuff. Reach out to me. I'll, I'll put my uh, email in the uh, in the chat after this. Have a yep. good day. Uh, next up is Jason Gale, managing partner of Cyber Capital Partners. And do you need control for slides, Jason? Yes, please. Uh, perfect. Yeah. Thank you. And I will be live in a second here. Uh, let me go to the top. So I'm going to run through these awfully quickly, um, but the our perspective is the early stage cybersecurity within the United States national security markets. Um, it's kind of a strange thing. The United States government has outsourced one of our military branches, and that's our cybersecurity workforce. Um, if you look at what is happening, you know, look at the national security supply chain. Every great war is won and lost based off of taking down the opponent's supply chain. Well, China, Russia, North Korea, Iran are attacking our critical infrastructure sectors. We've been talking about it since 2000, and all of a sudden in 2021 is the first time that the average citizen has had impact and interruptions in their daily operations. Look at the rollouts, and we have this consistent theme that the, it starts with the intelligence community. It rolls out across the military. Then it rolls out across the rest of the federal government and then into industry, starting with the enterprise first, then those medium-sized businesses, and lastly into the small, right? So if we think about this, we, we have seen legislation starting in around 2010 where the enterprises of those critical infrastructure sectors really had to start doing this compliance, uh, and they were far more concerned about compliance than they were about security. Well, in 2021, we're starting to see the rollout of small business cybersecurity maturity model certification compliance in the defense industrial base. We anticipate that we're going to see that rollout across all federal agencies and all federal contractors supporting all federal agencies, and then across those 16 critical infrastructure sectors as well, as all entities in those sectors need to get secure, or we do not have a secure national supply chain. If we look at the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency's website, the sub-agency of the Department, Department of Homeland Security that is responsible for that coordinated council with each of those 16 uh, critical infrastructure sectors, they very specifically call out for this public-private partnership. And when Biden put out his uh, May 2021 executive order on cybersecurity, again, he calls out for that public-private partnership. 
I don't need to go into the state of the market. It's crazy hot. But if we start looking at the new things that have happened this year, CMMC, that cybersecurity maturity model certification, requires about $30 billion of new annual spend in order to make sure that our, our federal contractors are actually secure. The Biden executive order, and I'll talk about that a little bit more, adds many more billions of dollars. And if the moment that Congress passes the infrastructure bill, along with the other 115 cybersecurity bills that are going through Congress right now, we're going to see a rapid growth in this in this market. And then the last statement on here is we spent $6.4 trillion responding to 9-11. How much are we going to spend responding to China and Russia's constant attack on the United States? So if we put these two things together, what we've seen is that the government has rolled out the stick, right? Well, the carrot is the government needs to bear the cost where industry can't. So one of the places is research developments. The second is how do we have a national standards test and evaluation on new technologies that are entering into the marketplace, right? So we don't have a great national cyber range. We're just learning how to have this joint artificial intelligence center for the Department of Defense. Going from there, you have thousands of businesses that are are our customers are reliant on uh you know daily operations, whether those are electric utilities, those are uh you know our water or sewer, they don't have the funding in order to protect themselves. So there needs to be a federal tax credit rebates, uh, grants, et cetera. And lastly on this, we've already talked about it multiple times, but there is an enormous gap in the cybersecurity workforce. One of the great things we've seen, and we work with a firm called Fusion Cyber, they can take a, a student who has a expected income of $27,000. They spend $20,000 in a year getting trained, and their starting salary is $125,000. You get them cleared, their starting salary is $150,000 to support one of our federal agencies. Cyber Capital Partners, we have a contract to support the Department of Energy. The Department of Energy has been responsible for IR&D for the defense and intelligence community since the, the mid-40s with the nuclear, uh, nuclear power, nuclear bombs. So our project with them is taking the hundreds of millions of dollars of research and development that the defense and intelligence community has requested of our national labs, specifically 10 of the 17 national labs, They've created 200 plus technologies that are all advanced next generation transformational technologies that are stuck sitting on the shelf. And the reasons are multiple, but whether we're talking about private accelerators, we're talking about academia, or we're talking about the federal accelerators, we're pretty lousy as a nation of taking great innovation, great basic research or advanced research, and going through a methodology to go deploy that into and get it into the hands of early adopters so that we know that we're actually making transformational change. There's a reason for this, and that is there is a lot of money for seed, meaning I'm going to give you $100,000 to go get to a proof of concept, and then you need to come back to me once you've gotten $2 million of annual recurring revenue, I'll give you your Series A, right? So there's a huge gap, and the grand majority of cybersecurity investors go, look, I need the market to prove this to me. 
And we think that's fundamentally flawed. We think there's major issues all throughout that. However, in order to bridge that gap, you need to do very deliberate processes. You've got to do market intelligence. You've got to do multiple deployments of those technologies with referenceable accounts. You need to do independent verification and validation of those technologies. And you need to make sure that the technologist who is the genius who figured out the solution set, maybe they had special access to government labs, they had access to resources that that, uh, the typical entrepreneur would not have. They're not the entrepreneur that you want leading the sales and the commercialization efforts of this. So we take a different approach. Our approach is we take batches of technologies. Ethan, I apologize. I, I keep playing this role of bad cop. Uh, okay. You just have to keep it keep it rolling. Maybe like another minute. That that's perfect. Uh, I'll I'll do this awfully quickly. We take the batch of seventy with, with our current contract. We have seventy three technologies. We down selected them to twelve. We've brought them to our network of twenty thousand customers, strategic partners, co investors. We have three contracts at this point with the Department of Energy and additional funding, and we bring them through to their new co-formation, bring them to the 180 sub-agency, federal sub-agencies and those 16 critical infrastructure sectors. I won't hit on the executive order too much here. Um, well, actually, that, that was it. So <clears throat> Biden's executive order is, is incredibly well aligned with what is the current state of next-gen cyber technologies. And when you're looking for these, pulling these technologies out of the national labs and at advanced accelerators, that has been our feeding ground. So that, that's, that's a bit about cyber capital partners. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Jason. Our next speaker is Mislav uh, Tolusik. Uh, Hi, everybody. Compton Ventures and AIM-13. Hi, everybody. Misa Tolusik with uh, AIM-13 CVP. <clears throat> and uh, we focus in early stage, four areas of, uh, four areas that we focus, cybersecurity, AI analytics, autonomy, robotics, and uh, in space. Uh, ditto most of the comments here that were made about cybersecurity being a growing and uh, very exciting industry to invest in. However, it is not an easy industry to invest in. <clears throat> For instance, in some of our discussions with the CIOs at the large, uh, large, uh, Fortune 500s in, in the US, we kind of found this trend of consolidation. For instance, one CIO told me that, uh, he took down 400 cybersecurity tools down to 100. Uh, what that really means is going forward, what, what investors need to focus on is finding companies that actually have products versus, uh, uh versus features. <clears throat> you know, and this is where I think a lot of, uh, a lot of the problem is, We've got a lot of investment going into companies that are really nothing more than features that perhaps uh, address the flavor of the day but don't have long-term uh, long-term sustainability. The other very important thing to really sort of think about, this goes back to our first forte into we, – we started a company back in 2010 that was in a penetration testing space. Back then, that was, that was the high end of uh, cybersecurity. But what we very, very quickly figured out through some 300-odd engagements, our penetration testers got in every time, and they got in – through the same techniques, which was phishing emails. And it came down in the end, the problem is not so much of a technology as much as can you put an email together that is convincing enough to get somebody to click uh, to click on the link. <clears throat> so the human aspect of cybersecurity, 
I tend to feel like it's very, very underestimated when uh, products are are evaluated. And that's something that we focus on a lot when we do our diligence on on the companies. But overall, look, I don't want to be a fear monger, but I believe we are in a guerrilla war with our adversaries. <laughs> you know, if this were, uh, there is a possibility that this turns into a full-on war where you have the non-state actors that are constantly probing and attacking. At some point in time, you didn't, you didn't have that calculus as part of, you know, the previous Cold War and the nuclear conflict, uh, uh, conflict situation. The other thing that uh, that I think is very, very interesting for cybersecurity is we got new frameworks uh, that are becoming prominent now. Zero trust is a great is a great example, uh, even though the thing sort of seemed to be thought out back in 2015. It is only now being being implemented. And this once those things start to get implemented, you start to see some anomalies. For instance, data in transit is encrypted when it's addressed. It's not. It doesn't really necessarily make sense why that is why that is the case, but you know that's the way the that's the that's the way of the world, and as it always is with cybersecurity, what we found is people recognize that there is a problem, but they don't seem to be doing anything um, anything about it. <clears throat> and then uh, you know to go back <clears throat> to product versus feature, I think if you look at companies that again that address the human side and have the ability to evolve, as quite frankly human imagination evolves. Those are the types of things that, uh, that will provide, uh, sustain, sustainability. So ARR and revenue metrics, very important. Obviously you need to pay attention to it, but I think it's also very, very important to understand that technology and the ability of that technology to morph over time because threats in cyber, what was, what was a threat in cybersecurity five years ago? It's not a threat today or it is, or it looks very, very, uh, very, very different. Um, the other thing that, that is super interesting in terms of cybersecurity where we're spending a lot of time thinking about is uh, is the supply chain. The small mom, proverbial mom and pop shops, they can't afford expensive solutions. If their top line is 500 million to, to say uh, $500,000 to say a million, how much can they really afford to spend on cybersecurity? Hackers know this. And that's why when you look at, for instance, something like Target, great example, it was done through an HVAC contractor, a small, 10, 15 man firm, if I remember, if I remember correctly. And this is, uh, this is a super interesting area and McKinsey's kind of valuing this as a $50 billion opportunity that is, uh, that is lacking a product out there to, um, to address it. <clears throat> so <clears throat> in a nutshell, to just kind of say, with, I think it's a human, the problem is going to continue to get worse. It's a human problem. Sustainability is very, very important part of the overall of the overall diligence. And um, that's where we're spending most of our time trying to think through. How do we invest that? Thanks, Ms. Love. Um, so I'm not sure, Mark, um, do we have a few minutes for questions for the panel or do we need to move yeah, forward? Yeah, absolutely. And, and maybe Peter, Tom, Peter Berger, or Tom Gatto look after cybersecurity for, for us. Uh, they might have a question or from the audience. And you can also apply this to Stephen Burke or or Jim. Yeah, so anybody who has a question, uh, feel free to uh, ask. we got about a few minutes. Uh, I'll jump in and just uh, ask a, a quick question because these all the speakers so far are really tying everything in really, really, really well. Um, but, I mean, we're talking about how is the government engaging, in, you know, the private sector capital in a sense, or what are the lessons learned for the capital allocators and how best to capitalize on it? Um, from the 
public side, we saw some pretty high PEs. From the private side, the people and the being able to be nimble. So, you know, where's the balance between the zero trust architecture versus network detection, mediation, and incident response, if that makes sense? So let me jump in real quick on where's the government working with the uh, capital, right? <clears throat> so for the first time, Katie Harrington, uh, who headed up federal procurement over in, uh, in the Pentagon, um, built out something called the Department of Defense Trusted Capital Marketplace. We know we're, we're, we happen to be one of the tra- trusted capital providers, uh, which required that we went through a, a security clearance r- review, et cetera. Um, so the government is trying to figure out how to make sure that U.S. military technologies – and U.S. national security technologies are in the hands of U.S. investors, right? We're not quite good at it yet. Um, so there is definitely a rollout of old programs, um, you know, other forms of public-private partnerships we've seen in the past. But there is there is an ability to utilize firms like Cyber Capital Partners, and there's other trusted capital providers for family offices, for LPs, um, to put their money into these types of programs and making sure that they've got great guardianship throughout it. So um, there, there is a dependency on third-party organizations like Cyber Capital Partners to provide that facilitator role. Awesome. Thank you. Anyone else have a question? Well, so, and I'm sure Lucas could jump in on this as well. Uh, in terms of the question about zero trust versus uh, – you know, the the legacy of, uh, you know, how do we defend the wall? <clears throat> what I think we're seeing right now is uh, there, there used to be a giant dam, and then there was all these holes that started coming out, right? And so we've seen over the past 15 years all this patch management. How, how do we spend money on incident response? We've got all these leaks in the dam. For the first time in a while, we're building new dams, Right. And so when we think about the critical infrastructure bill that's coming out, it's not just actual physical systems. It's the cybersecurity around them. So right now it's something like 75 percent of all cybersecurity dollars are spent on remediation. The next generation is going to be spent on refreshing our IT stack so that the security is built in in the supply chain it's built in the original code to begin with and i think that what we'll see is this this ever growing uh you know wall is going to start slowing the 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 pace of growth over the course of the next decade where we'll get to some kind of new mature base standing of uh you know perimeter defense in, in whatever term that actually means lucas what do you think yeah, so really quickly, the, the way things generally go, first you need visibility, right? You need to know that there's an attacker inside. Then you can put up a wall, right? So then you get your defense. Then you spend money on remediation. And finally, you get to self-healing, right? And that, and you see that with, with kind of every cybersecurity thing as it happens. And, and then a new technology comes and you start from ground zero. So IoT, well, first is the visibility problem. What's on my network? Where are all these IPTVs? Okay, I know where they are. Let's put a firewall in front of them. Let's defend them somehow. Okay, someone broke into them. Let's remediate. And then finally you get to the point of like, hey, OEMs, let's design these things so that they don't, they can self-heal or don't break in the first place. So I think you're exactly on it. The reason 75% is remediation is we've come down that curve for most like network and application security. IoT, on the other hand, as you see the spend there, you're going to see it in those early stages. What do I have and how do I defend it, not how do I remediate it, because you can't get to remediation until you can at least put a wall in front of it 
or the thing itself is hardened. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think, uh, you know, zero trust is a new model. I think it's really interesting. I think you're going to see a bunch of companies go to that, right? Google kind of started that off. I'm going to say less than 10% of companies are really anywhere there. Everyone's talking about it. It's an expensive move and most people aren't ready. You know, I, I'm going to jump right back in on that, Lucas. The, uh, one of the sexiest parts of cybersecurity to me is the industrial control systems. And it's because we're talking about doing a refresh of technology that was last refreshed 50 years ago. So everything is spent on how do we do incident response right now? Everything that we're pulling out of the national laboratories is how do we actually rebuild this? So Siemens is a massive ICS cybersecurity practice, right? You're going to see these OEMs in the industrial control spaces responding to the 2021 ransomware attacks with, okay, it's now time for us to spend on new infrastructure, not just on plugging plugging the holes. Yeah, Jason, let me just add real quick, um, uh, and, and for, um, uh, uh, sorry, Lucas, Jason, and Miss Love, um, can we talk about, I think what, uh, um, Stephen talked about earlier is about a lot of things converging all at the same time, just in the day and age that we're in. And I think also with cybersecurity, how technology is just advancing so fast, uh, and the change in, in, uh, using, I guess you could really say five-year-old technology is really kind of considered legacy technology uh, in the cyberspace because we're also getting into the next-gen stuff with quantum and uh, different things that are uh, looming threats. So can you just talk a little bit about that and why it's it's such an important time right now for the retooling that a lot of different companies and governments doing? Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll take a lead on that for a quick moment. So University of Maryland has the uh, quantum lab, right? And, and everything that we interact with them around is – how do we test quantum resistance, right? So <clears throat> I care less about the fact that we've got these advanced technologies like AI and quantum that, that um, you know, completely overwhelm our workforces. I far more care that what we're building today is going to be able to stand up to those new overwhelming forces. So when we're thinking about how do you – build for the next generation you got to be planning on not not human attackers but quantum computer quantum computing based ai attackers and that is a whole entire different game that we're going to be playing shortly here so my only big scare in this entire thing for me is boy when we're talking about putting a hundred million dollars into research and development what is our time period to actually get the return on that investment? So what we look at are things that are going to last through quantum. On that, look, I think, on that point, could you maybe speak to that, Joseph Chan, since you're an investor in, uh, in the space? Hey, guys. Sorry about that. What was the exact question? Well, effectively, uh, about next-gen technology in the cyberspace and, and the time that uh, it needs to be actually up and going in investment uh, amounts. Yeah, I mean, listen, um, you know, I, I can't comment widely. I'm not a security expert, but, you know, as I mentioned in, in the chat, I'm concerned about, you know, some of the existential risk that's coming online with quantum. You know, whatever you believe the timing is, 5, 10, 20 years, 
I think the U.S. and other governments are, are keenly aware, acutely aware of, you know, what that existential risk is. So they've got legislation that they're working on that says, hey, by X date, we need to be post-quantum secure. Not only do the government computers have to be secure, but all vendors of the government. That's actual legislation that's being pushed. Um, one of my portfolio companies, Q Secure, they've been on a previous cybersecurity uh, uh, event, uh, you know, uh, is now out with software and proof of concept with, you know, big guys like Franklin Templeton. So people are starting to look at this. And I think if you're not a, if you're a CISO and you haven't started thinking about this, um, it's probably a good idea. Um, they, you know, they recently met with the SoftBank CISO and, uh, you know, he's very, very interested in, in their technology. So it's, it's something that I think folks should be looking at it because this is a, I don't know if China gets it in the, in the next five years, uh, you know, and before legislation gets in place, all hell will break loose, right? If if uh, if we do have a quantum attack, and if we don't, then then you're you're in good shape, you know, because you've prepared for that. So you know, they said they did an econometric study, and they said the first quantum attack will cause something like two trillion dollars in damages. So if you think that's a one percent chance on a two trillion dollar attack, you should be spending minimally twenty billion dollars a year to kind of secure your networks. Hey, Mark, um, this is Rob. I have a quick question for Lucas. Uh, Lucas, you mentioned um, Sentinel-1 earlier in their IPO, and I actually went to that IPO um, um, celebration here in, in, in New York a couple weeks back. Um, I, I guess you have a smattering of celebrities in there. It's almost sort of spackish. Rob, you're at every single celebration. So that's <laughs> no, but then I think Ashton Kushner's in that deal, and then the fellow who was the cyber person, and Jason probably knows from the, um, from the Trump administration. But uh, it was sort of spackish in terms of that, that blend. Do you see that trend happening, or do you is, was that just opportunistic and sort of Hollywood money being smart? Uh, so, I mean, there's definitely Hollywood investors who are doing early-stage investing. Ashton Kutcher is a really good example. Uh, and they're doing it pretty well. Uh, they've got good advisors, right? So they, they don't generally go it alone. It's not like they're just spreading money around. Uh, and so the, the Hollywood entering venture capital, totally a thing. Um, <laughs> cybersecurity becoming sexier, also totally a thing, right? Uh, you've got TV shows like Mr. Robot. Um, and the fact is that even venture capital has become kind of a mainstream norm. You know, let's blame the social network movie. Uh, so I think all of those things uh, have taken what used to be kind of a, you know, like many financial things, was a backwater, and now it's kind of front and center, right? Um, you know, you looked at like um, distressed debt had the same thing, right? It went from a backwater to being a big thing in like the 90s and 2000s. Uh, so I, I, I think that's probably likely. Do I think it's particularly a good thing? No, right? Like I, I don't think building companies, especially cybersecurity companies, requires star power. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, uh, everybody wants to be part of the winner, right? Yeah. Um, I, I think we got to move on at this point, but just uh, one of my own, um, I guess, opinions in that area is I think that um, they're using it as a catalyst to get into the, the, the uh, uh, public markets to infuse a lot more capital into it. Um, uh, Luke, I, I did have a question relative to, you could say, how I could be pointed to, you know, a little bit more research it had, and it's for kind of the group. It pertains to this idea that if you're talking about, you know, government uh, participation, you know, both on the R&D side or the investment side, to what extent do or does cyber criminals that may be either state actors or supported by state actors 
factor into any kind of consideration or analysis? Is this something that's taking up a big space or big space of conversation? Because as a, you could say a lay person, we're hearing a lot about state actors involved in cybercrime. So, Lauren, that's a good segue over to Hamlet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, we'll, yeah, I, I think Hamlet will cover that uh, pretty good in his next talk. So we'll move forward. And our next speaker is Hamlet Youssef, uh, who's the managing partner at Iron Gate Capital. And um, I'll just turn it over to you. Do you need slide control? Yeah, I, I do. I'm going to cover the first couple of slides. I think Peter and Tom are going to talk about our platform. Okay. Go for it. So give me one second here. Let me get. Actually, I think you guys need to hand over the slide control to me. I think you just, you just hit share screen, damn it. I do. Uh, you figure it would be a Zoom. Alternative, alternatively, uh, I can put it on my screen. Nope, I got it. All right, can everyone see uh, Xi and Putin? We do. All right. Fantastic. My two favorite people. Um, so my name is Hamlet Youssef. I'm with Iron Gate Capital Advisors. We are a, a hybrid platform. We're a venture fund uh, focused exclusively on investing in dual-use technologies. So we invest in tech that has an application in national security and defense, but also has a greater application in the private sector. Um, our team is, is comprised of former intelligence officers, uh, folks from DOD and the diplomacy uh, space within the federal government. So we have uh, active relationships and active security clearances that help us navigate our investments. Um, we're shameless capitalists, so we want to make as much money as we can, but we're doing it uh, because of a sense of mission, and it's really driven by this slide here with uh, with Xi and Putin. Um, we've heard several folks talk uh, talk and, uh, and touch on this. Uh, we do think we are in a second Cold War, if not a third World War. We've been talking about this for several years. Uh, Chinese uh, penetration of our critical infrastructure, um, our intellectual property theft now is starting to be documented. And a lot of what was known is starting to make it out in the press. But this has been going on for almost 15 to 20 years. Uh, both Xi and Putin are on record specifically saying whoever gets to the position of dominance in key technologies like artificial intelligence, hypersonics and quantum computing is going to dictate geopolitics in the 21st century. So what was some of the key drivers of the Cold War? in the uh, 20th century is now kind of re-manifesting itself here in the 21st century, where the 20th century Cold War was about uh, weaponry, rockets, ICBMs, and nuclear. The uh, technology arms race that we're in right now in the 21st century is more geared around the deep tech, around AI, quantum computing, offensive and defensive cybersecurity, on-man systems and robotics. So um, one of the things we're starting to see, uh, it's a trend that began under President Obama, uh, was significantly accelerated under uh, uh, President Trump. Uh, the TCM, Trusted Capital Marketplace, which Jason referred to, was, was launched under uh, President uh, Trump. Defense Innovation Unit, which was a DOD-facing uh, unit, was uh, launched under President Obama. And with all things uh, kind of being bipartisan, split in D.C., the one thing that has had staying power is this continued engagement for private sector technology and private sector capital to get involved, get involved in a national security fight. And this is something that President Biden has continued to accelerate. So there's going to be, I think, a tremendous amount of opportunities here for allocators who are looking to move into this space. I want to touch on a couple of macros here. Uh, but if you look at the defense budget, defense department budget 
under President uh, Trump. I think you were in the $700 billion range. Uh, so far, the 2021 and the forward-looking 22 budgets under President Biden have not changed all that much. Now, obviously, Republicans uh, generally have wanted for a greater spend. Uh, some of the uh, the more bearish or fiscal conservatives, um, not fiscal conservatives, but people who don't want to see a, a burgeoning defense budget on the left have wanted to see a, a smaller budget. That budget has stayed the same. Um, the recent budget under President Biden had called for over $100 billion in RDT&E. That's uh, research development testing. So it's showing that continued uh, focus of, of a push uh, to continue investments in this space, but more importantly, to grow the um, uh, the relationship with the, with the private sector as well. Um, I'm going to forward to this slide real quick, um, which really breaks down what we're calling the uh, the post uh, post Cold War or now the Great Power Competition uh, landscape as it as it relates to to national budgets. Uh, so what you're seeing here in 1967, the U.S. Uh, obviously had the lion's share of of what they spent uh, in terms of R&D um, and the overall defense budget. A bulk of that was done through the U.S. government and through the primes or the main defense contractors. What you've seen shift here in 1997 and into 2017 is the rest of the world is caught up. Uh, the rest of the world is defend, is, is, is investing in, in innovation. They're investing in, um, in national security and defense. Uh, the overall pie in terms of what the federal government has done has shrunk uh, considerably in that time. What you're starting to see now is a greater reliance on partnerships with the private sector. Uh, as Jason mentioned, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the federal government has outsourced one of our, uh, parts of our military in terms of cyber warriors. Uh, I'm actually going to use that and quote that back to you, but that, that's ex essentially what you've seen happen. Um, I actually think that's a good thing because having served in the federal government, uh, I love my country, but it is without a doubt, uh, very slow, very lethargic and, uh, not just, uh, it doesn't operate as, at the pace it should to stay ahead of the disruptions that are happening in technology. So what does that mean in the micro uh, for you all in this call that want to allocate capital in this space is if you have deep uh, relationships and ties and understanding of cybersecurity, national security and technology, then you can probably go in there and hunt and peck and find opportunities. If you do not, then that's where I think it becomes critical to make sure you're investing in and with uh, people who have access and, and insight in terms of what's happening. Uh, the purpose of this call and the way we structured it is you have your choices. Uh, we're going to get into some direct deal opportunities of some fascinating companies that are disrupting the space. So in a traditional sense, you can go after and, and chase startup opportunities, get educated and deploy capital. You can invest with a variety of, of funds that are focused on this place or in this space. And we saw two that do that in terms of Lytical um, and, and, and Jason's firm, Cyber, Cyber Capital Partners. And then there's a third option, which is us, which is what we do is we invest in and with funds and direct uh, investment opportunities as well. We think it's an opportunity to not only uh, in, invest in what we think is a significant uh, bull market, which is that, that that intersection of tech, cyber, and national security, uh, but it is an area that I think is, is grossly underserved in terms of uh, the private sector right now. Uh, the other thing it does is if, if you think about it, what, what, the, what does this impact and uh, Mark, I'll give you a shameless plug for your Midwest tour, but one of the big things we're, th we're seeing is we're seeing a divergence away from investing in New York, Boston, and Silicon Valley. We're starting to see a lot of innovation, a lot of human capital, and a lot of financial capital in the Midwest, uh, kind of the flyover states and other parts of the country that I think are starting to uh, garner more attention and more capital. 
what that benefits, obviously, is one, you're not overpaying for the deals you're seeing in Silicon Valley. But two, when you're investing in two guys or two girls in a garage and they turn into 10 people and we work in a 200-person company, you're paying domestic, uh, you're, you're creating domestic paying jobs that obviously are going to fuel our economy as well. So those are all, those are all good things to think through. Uh, to think about how, how this, this, this ecosystem works. And, uh, uh I'll go back to, uh, what talked about with Wicker. This is a great case study in terms of, of how this ecosystem can work. Um, the encrypted, uh, point to point communications platform market is very fragmented, very noisy, very crowded. Uh, we were approached through our friends in, in the federal government about Wicker, took an interest in the company, took Wicker over to, to Lytical, uh, collectively, we diligenced that opportunity. I realized that we, one, had a very good management team. Two, we had a very good um, uh, platform and technology to invest in. Three, the government was keenly interested in this space. And four, we saw that there were some big companies that were already fishing around that uh, that IP. So that made us uh, very comfortable with that risk of being able to de-risk that. So uh, before I hand this off to, to Peter and Tom, um, it really comes down to one key thing is at the end of the day, if you're going to invest in this space, you've got to know the space. If you don't, then uh, I strongly, strongly encourage you as an allocator, as a family office, to make sure you're partnering up with the right folks who have access and insight to this space. Peter, Tom. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Um, wow, these speakers have uh, have made my comments pretty darn easy. Um, anyway, my name is Peter Bergen. I'm a managing partner of BG Partners. Um, Tom and I are going to talk a little bit about IronGate as an investment platform, if you will, in terms of this cyber landscape. Um, in full disclosure, we you know we're happy to work with 361 firm. We we are we uh, work with IronGate and raising capital, and we are. Uh, also vested in the platform. Um, and the reason that I personally did was um, I was not serving in the military. I never have great, amazing respect for those who do. And I found this was a way to uh, serve my country and raising capital to help protect it. Um, so to Hamlet's point, you know, Iron Gate, it's a, a hybrid venture, uh, venture focused platform with a direct investment component to it, optionality-wise. And, you know, a lot of the speakers have talked about <laughs> a lot of the thesis around IronGate, and it's really kind of validated in a lot of ways. But, you know, the slide that you have here, it's really about the three pillars for IronGate is the people and the access and the impact. And, and you know, Hamlet mentioned, you know, the leadership team, and, you know, I'll – I'll throw it out there in a the sense of it's just, it's extraordinary. Uh, just to give three examples, the chairperson is Ty McCoy, who's former uh, Secretary of the U.S. Air Force under Reagan. Um, Joanne Isham is a former Deputy Chief of Science and Technology, CIA, and is, uh, General uh, Major General Stephen Sargent, Head of Weapons Testing for the Air Force. So, these folks have just an amazing insight to identify the gaps um, that are needed within the uh, government channels. Um, and the relationship, you know, is kind of, in a way, it speaks to the, the edge in every single family office I have ever spoken to, and I'm sure Mark can test and what have you, but, you know, they're always looking for an edge, Okay, whether it be their their deal flow, their process, etc. And the ecosystem 
that Iron Gate has. It's really a dual ecosystem in that they have the relationships with the government channels, okay, uh, the DOD, uh, obviously the, the uh, intelligence communities, etc. All the channels surrounding that, longstanding relationships, so they know exactly what is needed. And then their relationships with their uh, co-investment partners uh, on the venture platforms. I mean, Lucas, what an amazing uh, discussion there. Uh, and everybody spoke to uh, Wicker um, from, you know, if you want to call it slightly performance aspect. Yeah, we were co-investors in that and uh, direct investors subsequent to that. Uh, and it just shows the platform in terms of that deal flow and ecosystem and how that proof of concept is a, it's a great example of that. Um, so when you're figuring out what the edge is, you have the people, you've got the amazing you know, VC relationships where you've got tremendous transparency, tremendous alignment, uh, and tremendous vision. And that's what's really all these speakers saying, the vision. What What's coming next, okay? What uh, portfolio companies are going to do well and what are not quite meeting their milestones? And IronGate is in an optimal position uh, to to have the vision to see that. And what it comes down to from that standpoint is risk mitigation. I mean, VC, broadly speaking, is considered you know a risky space. I get that. But if you can mitigate that, and get a sense of what the winners, you know, those who won't be that successful in terms of portfolio companies, that is a massive risk mitigation scenario. Um, and everybody here, I think, you know, lends some credit to that thesis. Um, you know, so we, we welcome questions. Uh, please contact Tom and I. Tom is going to um, uh, talk about the structure uh, of the platform. Uh, in terms of, you know, allocation, et cetera. Um, but uh, I'm, if there are any questions for me, I'm happy to answer them, but maybe better after Tom speaks. But it's really a pleasure to uh, be here uh, with this uh, amazing group of folks speaking. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Can uh, you guys hear me okay? Yes. Great. Uh, Hamlet, one more slide. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I, I believe that the structure of the Iron Gate uh, Defense Opportunity Fund is brilliant. Uh, to Peter's point, we both invested. Uh, I echo a sentiment of uh, trying to protect the security of the United States. Uh, the structure, it's set up as a hybrid platform of investing in hard-to-access and hard-to-diligence funds, uh, as well as the opportunity to uh, directly invest into specific companies alongside Iron Gate uh, and their fund uh, partners. So what this allows, obviously, let's just use an example. Over time, if you're in 10 funds at 10 to 15 names per fund, you're roughly going to get exposure to 100 to 150 names, obviously allowing for immediate diversification. Uh, also helping reduce risk because you will have a plethora of different companies that you're invested in. Uh, you're also going to have the benefit, as I mentioned, of directly investing alongside IronGate. Uh, and these are going into specific companies. They're going to be co-investing with their fund partners, as I had mentioned. And this really allows for a double layer of due diligence, if you think about it, not only from the fund uh, investing, but also uh, through IronGate. And they're really able, to Peter's point, with their network, uh, to cherry-pick the companies that they think uh, will have the most success. So Wicker, 
is a great example, and there are many others. So currently in about eight funds and, and six, I believe, direct investments at this time. Uh, certainly there's a pipeline behind that. Um, and what's really great about the direct investment side of things is that there is no fee or carry on these investments. So over time, your overall fee into the fund will be much lower. And Iron Gate doesn't have, it, have an example of that. If you'd like to see that, uh, happy to, to provide that for you. And just quickly to, to compare that to uh, this platform to a typical venture fund, you're going to be investing obviously in one fund, have much less exposure. Uh, but if you, and also if you're investing in a fund of funds, you're going to have more access, obviously, but there is no transparency. Uh, and one great thing about this platform, it is very transparent. And that's something that uh, was critical for Peter and I to invest in. So just to kind of sum up, if you put an investment into this platform, you're going to get uh, about 60% of your uh, monies into other uh, funds. Uh, again, hard to access, hard to diligence and roughly 40% will go into uh, direct investments. So uh, it really is a tremendous mix. Happy to help, happy to set up calls with IronGate if you'd like. So we'll put our emails in the chat um, and that's it. So thanks very much. Thanks, Tom and Peter. Sure. Um, next up is uh, Mark White from Shield.io. Mark, you there? Uh, Mark, you're dangerously close to owing us a lot of beers. How many beers? <laughs> um, am I sharing my screen? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Uh, my name is Mark White. A lot of you here in, here in the community, 361 community, know me as managing partner of Prairie Crest Capital, uh, which is an early stage venture firm. <laughs> and I've recently got involved with a company named Shield.io. Uh, as CEO, as part of our practice at Prairie Crest Capital, we helped uh, a lot of deep tech uh, companies that had uh, run into problems. We helped them solve their problems. Uh, Shield IO was one, and we've got it on a really good path right now. It is really so. We talk. About, there's a lot of great conversation here about how complex the cybersecurity space is, how urgent it is, uh, and uh, that's what attracted me to Shield IO. And what we have, in essence do is the last line of zero trust defense uh, by delivering encryption. It's a delivery platform that delivers encryption across the surface area of cybersecurity threats for data at rest, data in motion, and collaborative data. And why is this important? I think, you know, that we've had a lot of emphasis today on the existential threats that are asymmetric. Uh, that include the collaboration between nation-state actors and individual criminal enterprises. And it's really fundamental to that. I really love Hamlet's slide showing Xi Xi and Putin. What they really understand is what makes our society work. Our society works because we trust, right? And and, and what they're really attacking is very fundamental are not only strategic interests, but the very functioning of our society, as we see with misinformation uh, and other methodologies that are used. So it's the trust of transactions, and it's fundamentally why I'm passionate about this space and why, you know, I think it's a level of social impact investing as well. It's the protection of the fundamental basis of our society. And all of this is becoming uh, more relevant and more exposed. We often talk about the surface area of cybersecurity because we're expanding our surface area. And what that means is you have more touch points, you have more nodes that you're interacting with, 
and cloud migration accelerated during the pandemic, use of multiple public clouds and hybrid cloud strategies, and enhanced focus on data privacy is the perfect storm for data compliance and government uh, governance. Uh, we, we, we all know, in rather than talk about the existential threat, on a practical basis, the cost of uh, uh, data breaches is increasing. The cost of lost business has become an increasing proportion of that. And I could, I did this slide six months ago. I could replace all these names with other people now, right? Because we've had a number of other uh, either data breaches or we've had man, what are called man-in-the-middle attacks. And that's where people are interrupting data on its way from one place to another. We've also got uh, a number of regulatory tailwinds, and that's become emphasized by President Biden recently by a number of uh, presidential executive orders that are setting the stage and the foundation, I think, for federal regulation. But a lot of the newly passed data breach legislation contain a safe harbor for something, encryption, that last line of defense. If you're encrypted as a commercial organization, you're relatively protected, and I say relatively, it's not an ironclad protection, but relatively protected from both fines and private action, meaning uh, class action lawsuits. Um, when I say that it's rel- you're relatively well protected, a lot of encryption today uh, entails what are called, what's called uh, asymmetric encryption, which involves a public key and a private key. If that, so you have to store those keys. If that, those keys are compromised in any way, uh, you, you, you lose your safe harbor. Okay. To give you an idea where encryption lies in the schema of, of data security, we have a number of different, it, it was alluded to here earlier, but we have a number of different er, areas where, you know, you, you can be compromised. Human error, the physical theft of keys or physical theft of data, phishing, the stealing of credentials, still data and applications and malicious attacks. And there are a number of different layers to that security. You have perimeter security. You don't let people into your network. We all know that that gets defeated. You have network security, the security within your network that protects you from uh, bad actors within your network. Endpoint security, application security, credentials, and things like that. And then data encryption. There are a number of different use cases in data encryption. You have data at rest. Think about a database. You have, you know, you you, you have um, uh, you, your your data that may be protected. You may protect the whole disk or the database, which is called transparent data layer encryption, or you use field level encryption. And uh, a lot of people think, and I'll get to this point in a minute, that protecting the database or the disk is sufficient, but once people penetrate that layer of security, your data, your individual data, <clears throat> data is exposed, including for, for commercial purposes right now in a regulatory scheme, you need to be particularly concerned about PII, personal identifiable information, and PHI, personal health information. Uh, there's data in motion, which is, which is protected by a series of SSL, secure socket layer, and different wrappers that are still vulnerable to man-in-the-middle attacks and key uh, key breach vulnerability. In-use, which is, uh, you know, most of the commercial applications now, and I never, and by the way, I never represent this as comprehensive. There are new players coming into this market every day, but homomorphic encryption and secure DNets uh, and then data monetization, which is mostly homomorphic and third-party secured exchanges. Uh, there are different issues with each of those solutions that we attempt to solve. 
but the real shocking data is 90% of critical data is exposed at rest or in transit. And this is a general use case. What I call at rest and in transit are general use case deployments of encryption. Uh, and <clears throat> based on, uh, you know, our, based on the data that we've, we've acquired from Teradata, which is one of our uh, channel partners, uh, we've discovered the reasons why. That's difficult. The current encryption solutions are difficult to implement. They require application configurations on every node and every client where you have applications. They're operationally expensive. And some of the solutions to collaborative data, such as homomorphic encryption, are operationally expensive. Uh, they take a lot of computing overhead. Management complexity, meaning you have keys out there that you have to manage and key stores and uh, they're subject to uh, vulnerable to data breaches. You have unencrypted uh, field level data in transit. And there's a lot of non-interoperability on these platforms. Where Shield.io, uh, where our company solves this is where we live. And I'm not going to go into a lot of technical detail here, but we live in between, uh, you know, our encryption and decryption is based on an AI customized language that allows us to encrypt and decrypt on the fly. It allows us to be cryptography agnostic. So when I talk about cryptography, it's that AES-256, AES-128, the different measure, methods of in, in encrypting, the NIST quantum. Uh, the current NIST quantum competition, which has three open source solutions to cryptography that are quantum defensible. There's a, some debate around those of how quantum defensible they are in the develop, development of quantum as quantum gets more powerful, how defensible they are, which is why we think it's important to have a delivery platform that's cryptography agnostic. And uh, this solves a lot of the problems, can be instantly deployable and updated. But where we live is at the driver. We have a secure proprietary autonomous driver uh, and a DNet uh, and an AI-based uh, uh, DNA to that DNet that allows us to encrypt and decrypt on the fly using symmetrical encryption throughout your system. In other words, you don't have a key. It's all symmetrical, what we call symmetrical. Again, asymmetrical is where you have a public key and a private key. The public key is used by applications to operate on the data. And we can also I notice several uh, at the top there, Tableau, controllers, other ETL. ETL is uh, execu uh, execute, uh, uh, transact, and load. Those are what we call functional databases. A lot of encryption programs have problems following the data through the ETL databases and out to the applications. Our platform allows us to do that with any form of encryption. So again, you know, what we're really doing is seamless scalable deployment, ephemeral keys, we're keyless, distributed encryption algorithm, secure real-time data request. We can search on encrypted data. A lot of the legacy solutions, I'm not talking about some of the other innovative solutions on the marketplace, but the legacy solutions on the marketplace right now, in essence, scan the entire database, opening that database to, uh, to vulnerability while you're searching for, while you're doing queries on the data. And we have comparatively light resource consumption. Um, so that's the problems we solve and in, in, in what we provide. Uh, we have a good team, great team built, John Stoka, who's had several exits in software companies, myself. We have uh, people on our board from uh, Intel, uh, Aero Electronics. Uh, Rick Liotta was uh, formerly executive, senior executive at Microsoft. Uh, and uh, yeah, Alexander Krungard, who is uh, commander of SOCOM, cybersecurity. 
we are adding people to that advisory board. Uh, as we speak, we're adding a number of cryptologists. And uh, so that's, you know, kind of where we're at, well, the solution we provide. And again, that last, uh, the last point there is something that people have mentioned repeatedly throughout this conference, which is zero trust. You know, uh, encryption is a fundamental deployment of zero tr- of a zero trust system. And there's one other thing I'd like to mention that we're primarily focused on enterprise solutions right now. We're working with a number of enterprises on uh, proof of concepts at this particular point. Uh, but as someone alluded to, you know, this is becoming a larger problem for SMBs. Uh, I recently received a letter from an eye clinic that uh, my eye clinic, that their whole uh, databases were breached. Uh, this is a series of eye clinics. It's a medium-sized business, order of magnitude, re- revenues of $250, $300 million. But, you know, they're, they're offering to pay all their clients life for LifeLock for 10 years to mitigate this. So this is increasingly becoming a medium-sized business problem as those organizations are more vulnerable, which means, makes ease of deployment and ease of uh, simplicity of operability quite an important thing. But uh, this is uh, this is you know not not it's a pro- existential problem. It's a national security problem. It's a problem for organizations that depend on trust to operate, and it's increasingly a small and medium-sized business problem. And I think Luke, you're particularly focused on that. So the SMB part. So any questions, feel free to reach out to me. I appreciate the opportunity to tell uh, you know our story and how we can solve problems. Great. Thanks, Mark. This is, I noticed this is Michigan colors in my background. We both share, but um, <laughs> I didn't wear any Michigan gear today, Mark. <laughs> yeah, this is my way of trying to let people know that we got to keep it moving. But it's, it's good. Thank you, Mark. All right. Um, could I get uh, screen oh, share? There's my Michigan colors. Yep. Thank you, Mark. You just have to stop sharing, Mark. Right? Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. All right. Can we see this or do I need to? You can just go to slideshow. Uh, okay. So uh, my name is Luke Tempe, CEO of Desana Consulting. Um, we also have a cyber brand, CyberMass, uh, where we provide cybersecurity services. Um, today I'm actually talking about an impact investment opportunity that we're trying to start up. Um, it centers around food and water security fund. Um, and food and water, uh, so we invest in people, organizations, ideas that have the highest impact of food and water security opportunities that offer sustainable solutions that are utilizing innovative technologies, contributing to the environment safely, eliminating food waste, securing food, uh, and water critical infrastructure are among the top uh, criteria for building lasting relationships through sustainable impact initiatives. And these are opportunities with uh, uh, vested interest in securing and protecting the U.S. food supply chain domestically and internationally are highly attractive and to be invested in. And these can range from startups to uh, programs or educational components, different technologies, um, uh, different government programs, different um, um, investment opportunities in ag- agriculture or water tech. 
Um, so there's there's a very vast uh, um, area that this covers, and I'm going to show you how this relates to cybersecurity. So um, in 2013, under President Obama, there was the release of the Presidential Policy Directive um, that defined what critical infrastructure is under uh, uh, CISA, which is the Cybersecurity Infrastructure uh, Security Agency. And it defined out the, the critical infrastructure sectors. In 2018, under President Trump, the, um, the Global uh, Food Security Reauthorization added food and agriculture. And, um, you know, so I identify food and agriculture and the water. And the reason why I identify water is that the FDA actually classifies water as food, um, even though it's a multi-utility uh, uh, type product. So um, those are defined as critical infrastructure. And how this really relates to uh, um, food and, and tech uh, uh, in, in food and water security. So these are the most recent issues in the cybersecurity space. You know, JBS Meats um, was hit by a ransomware attack. Uh, they paid $11 million um, uh, to unleash uh, unsecure or un, uh, unencrypt their uh, data. It put them down um, for several several weeks. And um, this not only was an issue in the U.S. because JBS um, uh, covers, I think their market share is about 25% of the U.S. market, but the ripple effect actually had uh, international um, um, uh, fallout. So Canada and also Australia, Australia had uh, backup of uh, operational uh, things that they had to kind of stop. So it was a big, it was a big issue. And I still think they're um, uh, not back to normal at this point because it just this just happened in May. Um, so that's just one uh, thing. And then as far as water, the water treatment facility breach in Oldsmore, uh, Florida, um, the SCADA network breach uh, from a Russian hacking group linked to increasing chemical treatment uh, levels of sodium hydroxide, which is lye, um, the chemical composition of lye uh, before the Super Bowl Sunday weekend. And luckily it was caught in time um, and they reversed the uh, increase in, in release of this chemical um, that's normal. Uh, but if you have too much, it can cause a lot of uh, severe uh, sickness and even death. Um, so those are just two recent issues that were affecting the um, supply chain Um and at a macro level, China and Africa is a big challenge to future U.S. food security. Um, this is just a map that shows that uh, China actually has control of most of the ports within and around um, Africa. And um, a lot of investments and agriculture investments. So the Center for Strategic and in, in, in International Studies uh, wrote an arc, article in 2020 about China's growing power for a food secure world. And not to say that we're having some wars over there or some kind of conflict. It's just that it's becoming increasingly difficult um, with the expansion of uh, uh, China and, and how dominating they are, as some of the past speakers have alluded to. Um, so this is just an idea of, of what we're facing in the future uh, to secure food, uh, food sources for the United States. Um, so let me uh, go back to our uh, food security matrix. Uh, this is how food security is really kind of um, talked about in these four quadrants, availability, stability, access, and utilization. Um, and why does this matter? Really, this is where the cybersecurity aspect comes in. Is it, It's a direct um, 
uh, attack on the supply chain. So you got harvest, uh, transportation to processing plants, transportation uh, to whether it's cargo ships, um, transportation all around the world, and distribution, and then all those distribution channels to all the different markets, and then finally to the consumer. But all those leaves um, vulnerabilities and open um, attacks for cyber uh, incidents or breaches or uh, ransomware attacks that could disrupt uh, major things that, uh, um, you know, we have witnessed. And, you know, some of these just with the past pan- uh, with the pandemic also on top of the, the breaches that have happened um, exponentially uh, can, can be problems uh, for the, the economies and world economies. So how, how can cybersecurity help this? Well, you know, blockchain can be used in food traceability, artificial intelligence, um, platforms that can uh, uh, sift through data and, and learn uh, different anomaly, uh, 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 anomalies um, for threats. Uh, smart contracts can be used. Um, and then my biggest uh, area that I think is really up and coming that hasn't really been talked about a lot, but it is up and coming, is the OSINT, uh, which is open source intelligence tools. These are massively powerful tools for businesses to use where they're open source network uh, intelligence platforms or sources for intelligence that you could see things before they, uh, as they happen and also uh, be able to react sooner. Case in point, um, you know, this is just an example of OSINT and how powerful it can be for businesses. And um, the Suez Canal um, back in March had a uh, evergreen cargo ship stuck in the canal. And if you see this map here, just this stuck in there for two weeks, um, it's a 14 day trip through um, the Suez Canal, but if you have, if it's blocked or there's issues or it's down for maintenance, that trip around the Cape of Good Hope is a 24 day, uh, journey, but it's, it's a massively expensive, um, uh, reroute. So that's why the Suez Canal is so, so important, not, um, for goods and services. So, um, you know, just OSINT, the cell, uh, some of the OSINT tools that are out there, they identified this stuff and, and corporations were aware of this, um, especially some of the maritime applications that you can use to view this. But was this a one-off incident? Well, you know, debate's still out on this. I, I'm not really tied into the intelligence industry, but, um, you know, OSINT allows you to see things that are a lot more broader than what you can see visually on the news or other sources. And, you know, shortly after that, in the same time frame, there was also an incident in Taiwan where the same company had a truck blockage on a major highway in Taiwan. So are these related? I don't know. But this is what uh, uh, open source intelligence allows you to do um, from a business perspective. And I think these tools are going to be leveraged highly in the future um, for different aspects in, in uh, supply chain and um, other uses within the uh, uh, cybersecurity world. Um, am I already at the end? Okay, so food and water security. So the reason why I got into it, um, my early childhood consists of summer fun as a second generation uh, river guide. And I also was in civil air patrol search and rescue where I learned survival training um, and exercise domestic response for missing persons or downed aircraft. Uh, self-interest in the food security investment through my self-directed IRA, where I got involved with a company called Global Food Security Fund, and uh, which invests in global food exchange, which uh, is a technology that um, uh, dehydrates food and retains its nutritional value and can be stored up to 40 years. 
Um, so this was just, you know, my early aspect and success in, in this area and uh, my professional background. I've been in cybersecurity for a long time, uh, worked on DOD high profile projects, uh, subcontractor Lockheed Martin on the VH-71 presidential helicopter program. Um, and I have 15 years in uh, pr- uh, private industry across uh, cybersecurity in banking, finance, healthcare, energy and uh, other markets. And that's really about it. But um, we're we're looking to um, uh, provide a lot of opportunities uh, for some interesting technology coming up to help uh, secure uh, critical infrastructures. So and this is how we'll uh, do deal sources. We have government uh, sources, uh, deal sources in non-government organizations, NGOs, investment firms, uh, and then the open market. And that's how we're going to source these uh, different opportunities on top of what we already have. And that's it for me. Great. Uh, Last but not least. Next up is Mary. And I think she wants control for her slides, too. Hey, Mark. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's uh, very blessed to be here. I'm going to go ahead and uh, share my screen if I can have access to do that. You have access. Excellent. Thank you. So can you see it? Everything's okay on your side? Perfect. I want to put my hand up there. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so first of all, Mark, thanks for the invitation. It's, it's, uh, I've been listening in uh, since the beginning, and, and just uh, I, I'm very humbled to be here with such incredible human beings, such a wealth of knowledge across their industries. It's been a, a wonderful learning session, so um, thanks for bringing this about. So today I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the, the healthcare space, right, and, and how we look at security uh, and cybersecurity in the healthcare space. So when uh, when we first started looking at some of the challenges that we have in this space, uh, we looked at wanting to solve three major problems. Uh, I'll get to those in just a little bit. Uh, uh, the, the most important thing for me when I was looking at this, I wanted to figure out how do we do that for everybody in the world, right? So people we don't, do not have a telephone, right, so no technology whether it's people uh, sitting in, in a very rural area in Africa or India or South America somewhere, or if it's uh, someone who's sitting in a refugee camp. And so I actually started from that lens, because I knew if I could work backwards from there, then we can easily solve it from a technological perspective. So the first thing I want to jump into is let's just talk about, you know, um, how much uh, changes that we've seen here in, in the digital space when we talk about health information. So if we go back to uh, the Obama days, right, um, if, if you look at the, the, the changes that have happened in what's called the, the electronic health care, uh, health record space, you can see that from 2009 to 2016, uh, it, it rose exponentially of how many companies kind of jumped on the bandwagon of getting data electronically put into systems and moving away from a very paper-driven system. Uh, that's very much so the case in the Western world, in the Eastern world, still not so much. Uh, I've spent the last few years in India where I've actually built the platform and um, with, with an incredible group of uh, developers there. Uh, and everything is driven off of paper for the most part. Uh, and, and quite a few other countries I've worked uh, all over Asia before, and, uh, and, and a lot of them are still paper driven. Uh, you step into the states, a lot of academia when it comes to, to the healthcare space and, and getting records for students and whatnot, all of that is still very paper driven, right? Um, and just recently, uh, they passed an act that said, uh, you must, as a medical professional or institution, provide that, 
information, the records to your medical records to the patient electronically. And so we're moving more and more in that space. And um, uh, and there's quite a bit of money there to be had. Uh, and we'll talk about the, a little bit about that in, in a minute. So where did where did we want to start? We wanted to start with three major problems. So the first one is health data is extremely the entry of that data is ex- extremely redundant out there. You know, we all been to the doctor before. We spend 15 minutes filling out health information. Right. And it's all uh, even if we were there two weeks ago, a month ago, because something could have changed in that time frame. Uh, it's, it's none of it. It's all redundant. None of it. You can just put in once and utilize it. Right. So we wanted to, to, to figure out how do we streamline that process? Second big problem is there's no transparency or very little between providers. Uh, unless you're in a specific network, um, you can have doctors, you can have five doctors. If you're even sitting in, in Washington or New York or Texas and they can all use Epic, for example. Right. You can have three versions of my chart and they still won't talk to each other. So there is a, quite a quite a challenge out there still in the states. Uh, with the transparency uh, between information and the doctor's ability to be able to see us as a whole, a whole individual. A lot of that challenge comes into play because people don't like sharing data, especially the institutions that make a lot of money off of that. And there is a lot of security that needs to be in place to ensure that people's records are kept safe. And the last part about it was the ability for us to truly access and share our health information um, with anyone that we deem trustworthy, right? And and so these were the these were the challenges that we wanted to go after. One of the daunting figures that I, I found in the research that I was doing early on that John Hopkins put out was there's 250 to 400 thousand Americans alone die in early death, and 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 that's a daunting number when we think we just hit over 600 thousand with COVID. Um, and, and that's due to diagnostic errors, right? Uh, failures, uh, within the, the, the systems of data and, and easily uh, preventable uh, patient safety issues that happen, right? So when we talk about BIOS, how are we addressing these type of challenges out there? The first thing we wanted to do was we wanted to be able to allow you to put your health information in or a medical professional, in case you're in an underserved community, put that information in one time and that information could be shared. So then you would have one comprehensive view of all of your health information out there. We also wanted to act as an orchestration layer where we can start to pull data in from other systems that the individual could have a holistic view, which would then allow for that medical transparency to happen and the doctor could see you holistically as an individual, regardless of their specialty. Uh, example I use quite often in this space is, you know, you go to see a cardiologist and, and a, a month before or three weeks before, John Doe had a, a bad abscess in his mouth or a tooth infection, right? And so he had to, uh, he didn't tell that information to his cardiologist, but if his cardiologist would have known about that, he might have done a different set of tests, might have been able to diagnose him much earlier. Uh, I had a swim coach that this actually had to have a massive heart attack uh, when that happened, and, and the doctor wasn't aware of the dental challenges that he had. Right? And so when a doctor can see that person holistically, when he can see data, whether that data is updated uh, through his own personal records that he's updated or through records that came from his dentist, he can trust that data, right? As, and, and I think Hamlet was talking earlier about trust. It's all about trust, especially, and security, especially when you're talking about medical information. So what we come up with is come up with a ability to be able to scan your entire handprint, right? So all five fingers, your palm print, the depth of your hand, the veins of your hands. And, and we've patented that technology. Uh, we have a partner of ours that we're working with. And we are allowing then 
individuals, whether they're, again, uh, walking into a doctor's office here in on, on Fifth Avenue in New York, or whether they're sitting in a refugee camp in Syria, uh, the ability to be able to register their palm print, their handprint, and be able to identify you and as well as pull up all of your health information. So when we talk about this, it's a, it's a solution that we've come up with called the BIOS Health Pass. And so we're talking about real-time comprehensive data, um, shareable with anyone, anywhere, and you're in control of that. It, it is time. You've heard a lot of companies talk about democratizing data and how do we do that and how do we do that securely. We're doing that with blockchain technology. You know, you, you've heard, I mean, Dr. Liu gave such a great um outline of really what that is. When you think about blockchain, you know, it's a distributed ledger, right? It's decentralized, it's, it's distributed, it's encrypted, it's anonymous, it's uh, and it's immutable, right? And and there's a lot of corruption uh, that happens in this world. And when we thought about this, we thought about on a global scale. So so this solution isn't for the United States of America alone. It is for it is a is an international solution that we're going to put out there. And um, and there's a lot of challenges that happen with medical information. You know, someone will go into your medical record and you won't even know it. If the records in BIOS and they enter that, you'll get a notification that that information has been viewed or updated. You can get on the phone and go, well, Doctor Smith, you know, I just saw that my my information was updated. Uh, can you help me understand why that was? Yeah. Uh, in country, countries like India, they are uh, putting blockchain behind the movement of of organs because you know the the person with the with the largest check gets the gets the uh, the, the organ transplant, right? And so they're utilizing blockchain across the healthcare space in many different aspects, and uh, we're doing it to secure your records. So uh, we are HIPAA compliant, and um, and we are excited about the technology we have because there are many applications that we're going to use this. We're going to be able to have the ability to have a person walk into or even be rolled into a hospital, for example, and if they are registered in BIOS, they have their information there, and if they've opted into allowing a medical professional to view their health information based on their biometric print, then a doctor or even an EMT sitting in an ambulance that you saw earlier in there would be able to call the hospital ahead of time, be able to tell the ER everything that's associated with that particular individual. That way it lowers their um, their diagnostics time, it lowers their liability and it increases their efficiency. So, you know, a lot of people say, well, Mary, you know, why BIOS? Why now? There's a lot of companies out there. They've tried it, uh, still trying it. You know, Apple's, Apple's out there. They're trying to do a bit of interoperability now. And, and I always go back to a single point of failure, right? So, um, so the first, the first challenge is, you know, you've got to be able to take technology a little bit and remove it, right? There are people who won't have a telephone. Can they still be registered in? Can they still be seen? Can the can a homeless person in Houston uh, be able to walk into one of the the hospitals down in uh, in, in downtown Houston and be able to be seen? And can they can we make that process more efficiently? Can that data be secured? Uh, yes, all of that can be done, and it can be done much more efficiently and take a lot of costs and liability out of the system. So, you know, we've always needed this, right, this anytime, anywhere access, shareable, accurate data. If we had that earlier, probably that 250 to 400,000 number would be much less to, to, to help decrease that number. You think about the market, you know, and, and in the corporate world, I've lived in the corporate world, we, we have a saying, right, um, uh, strategy eats culture, uh, our culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? And so uh, the same can be true for this, for, for where we're at today when we talk about the health situation that we're in, especially with the pandemic, right? So coming off the coattails of COVID, there is a huge health awareness that we all have. I, I've talked to 
thousands of people all over the globe uh, in going through this last year and a half of research that I've been going through and building this platform. And uh, and people are at the point where they're kind of sick and tired of being sick and tired. And and everybody's been been behind me of when am I going to get it in my hands, Mary? And and so I think it's going to hugely benefit us as individuals. We aim to educate, communicate, and and pass information on to the user. Uh, much more effectively than it's being done today. We will very soon sit an AI engine behind this. And again, Dr. Lou talked about that, right? Where we will bring data sets of information, genome data, medical data, personal medical data, family medical data, all the types of data sets that are out there to do predictive analysis and to help either prevent further damage or prevent damage at all uh, from a, from a health medical perspective. We're all mobile moguls, right? We know our mobile phone better than we know uh, our own bodies. And so we will use this platform to educate people on the medications that they're taking, on the symptoms that they're having, and on the um, challenges and ailments that they have. And the tech is finally here. You know, uh, quantum is going to make a huge positive effect. I think we're behind the eight ball from a security perspective, of course. I think we're behind it with AI, uh, just like we were with the Internet, just like uh, Dr. Lou spoke of. Uh, we really need to start putting some parameters around it. I, I, I think a lot of people are doing a lot of good work to get there. Uh, but, yeah, we're not there yet. And so at the end of the day, uh, blockchain technology is going to play a huge part in the healthcare space. It's going to be a bit different than what we see in the financial space. It's not going to be an open public ledger. It is going to be lock solid because it's got to be because of health information. And, uh, and a lot of companies are starting to do good things with that, uh, including BIOS, and we're pretty excited about where we're going. When we scan the hand in, we take that print, we put it directly into the block. Yeah. When we, when we put your data in, we take that data, we put it in through SQL database. So you've got, um, I forget who, who spoke about it earlier, but that whole, the whole, um, chain of security, right? When you think about, I've been in corporate quite a long time, when we think about security, it's not a matter of if you're going to get hacked, it's a matter of when, right? And it's a matter of how many layers do you have. But the most important thing is, is how quickly can you identify it and how quickly can you respond to it? Yeah. And um, and so that's that's where uh, I think uh, from a security perspective, um, uh, blockchain will play a huge part in the healthcare space and, and securing data moving forward. Yeah. And um, I think that uh, on this journey that we've been in, I'll wrap up with with one thing. You know, I uh, when we when we think about security, um, you know, I, I, when I talk to people in layman's terms, often uh, I I uh, that that are not tech savvy, I, I always describe how do they have their house secured, right? And um, and you know, you put uh, you, you've got your lock on the front door, and you lock your windows, and you deadbolt it, and then you might put an alarm system, and then you might put a, um, a ring system outside, right? And, and uh, there, there are so many layers of security that needs to, 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 to come into play here. And, um, and when it comes to securing your data uh, health-wise, uh, that's, that's no different, yeah? And, uh, and so for us, uh, we think that um, uh, blockchain and AI uh, and machine learning as well will play a huge part in that. Uh, we're pretty excited uh, for some of the work that we're going to be doing with some of our partners that we're bringing on board uh, all over the globe. And, um, yeah, and uh, we hope you guys join join us. Uh, it, I'm new to 361 uh, Firm, but I'm excited to be a part of the, the family and uh, continue to have some great conversations with you guys. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Thanks, Mary. Mary, can, can, you, can you throw your contact up there a couple of more seconds? Absolutely. I'm on a, I'm on a, I'm on a, as you say, we know our mobile devices 
better than we know ourselves until we actually use them, right? <laughs> exactly, Lauren. <laughs> Take there a screenshot. <clears throat> okay, well, um, Mark, um, I think we can end the actual recording session now, unless you want to continue recording, but um, the actual um, discussion um, panel and the whole event has been completed, but uh, Mark, I don't know if you want to just open it up to just uh, general conversation at this point, but um, yeah, it was a great event. Thank you all for attending and um, thank you for being part of the 361 firm um, cybersecurity talk. Um, we appreciate everybody being here. Um, I think there's just all the speakers have been amazing uh, a breadth of top, uh, topics, opportunities. I think there's, we're on the precipice of a very, um, positive trend and growth for a lot of different areas and markets. So, um, uh, glad to be a part of it. Thank you. For, uh, I'll throw my two cents in on this one as well. Um, you know, when I think about what we've done in the past in corporate, right, and, and we're applying that to BIOS because obviously health information is extremely uh, important, right? It's it's one of the biggest pieces of information that people are trying to go after these days. And um, and so from my from my perspective, you know, we we had what's called a uh, cybersecurity framework, right? And this is my I think a lot of background noise. Maybe Lauren, that's you. Lauren, yeah, you're good. Okay, yeah, and. And Thank so, you. yeah, and so I think that uh, what, part of that framework, it's, you know, it's about, you know, identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover, right? And you've got a whole list of criteria, and, uh, and, and those particular uh, companies have very sophisticated uh, protocols in place in order to do that. And I think people who are carrying data that is, that will most likely be attacked, right? And um, people don't go after mom and pop shops. A lot of people are going to go after the big dogs and, and who has the amount of data and the kind of data that they can sell on a black market and make a lot of money off of, right? And so uh, I think the key to, to really getting your arms around this, because you're right, as, as I mentioned, right, it's not when it's it's not if it's when and and being able to identify it is is really the the most complex part of this right i worked for microsoft and and we had a lot of discussions with the CISO actually because of because of big corporate accounts like shell and and, and those big dogs right and uh, uh and so we sat down and we kind of looked at what's the criteria in place these guys actually work very closely the big tech companies behind the scenes and and looking at patterns and and using um, very sophisticated algorithms to to look at um, at what at what hackers are doing out there, right? And then they work to share that information with companies that have uh, data out there. Uh, they their CISOs talk to each other constantly, um, and and they are always uh, working to improve the framework that they've got in place. Because you know, people earlier someone asked about the whole quantum quantum hacking, right? Yeah, it's real and it's going to get there. Uh, uh, and it's going to get there faster than we think. And so uh, companies like Microsoft and Google and, and all the big dogs, they're working on, on ways of automatically trying to figure out how do we fix these, uh, how do we prepare for these issues. And then they work with large companies and, and even I, I'm going to work with them, right, with BIOS, because we have to enlist their help because they have the largest sets of data out there in order to do these types of security tests on that we wouldn't have. Right. And so that's why. 
when you're talking about putting data on the cloud, you want to go with an Amazon or an Azure uh, type of environment because they're the ones that are already doing the hard work for us. Right. But you got to have that framework in place. Every company should have that in place. They should go through scenarios where, OK, we've been hacked. Let's figure out how do we how do we go through it? And they and they should actually put themselves through those tests once a year minimum. That's my two cents work. I hope that helps. Yeah, it does. And the reason I, I'm drilling down on this for this group is I experienced my own three, uh, three to four year long set of attacks. And as an individual, it's it's possible. Right. And this isn't like someone took my credit card. And the kind of data I have is, you know, a lot of a lot of my friends and family and people that are not my family, but my friends, the people I know, they have a lot of money and they have enough money to make it worth hitting you, right? And you don't have enough money to defend against them. And that's why I said I want to drill down this group maybe on a separate topic. Cybersecurity for yeah, shell great, but it, it, you you can't spend enough money to prevent yourself from being attacked. And so that's why I want to get more information later on how do we how do we recover quickly as a small small company. Or is it family office? That's that's topic for me later. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a coordinated effort. I mean, it it really comes down to an incident response plan, and that incident response plan uh, with uh, a, a very orchestrated set of of uh, rules and and actions that have to be immediately acted on. And uh, as an organization, whether you're a corporation or just you know, a small family office or even just a um, uh, an individual uh, that is either high net worth or someone like that, you have to put certain uh, um, contingencies in place for that for you to actually operate. Um, you know, the little guy kind of gets uh, the brunt end of the stick because they don't really have much to operate with. And, um, you know, because they're such a low target anymore and they don't have much money to, to kind of extract from or, or extort, um, they're becoming less and less of a, a focus, and it's more, you know, where they can get the the, the biggest bang for their buck and most immediate return on uh, their activities. But it really comes down to, like I said, that incident response plan, the different uh, organizations that you're um, um, using as far as product companies and, and different um, agencies like FBI in place and actively working a plan of action and walking through that before it actually happens to make sure uh, things are done uh, in a, a very organized fashion uh, to really recover fast. It's when you don't have those plans and the chaos it just exponentially ramps up big time and it makes it much more of a problem. So, you know, they're, they're, these, these typically happen with companies that come in to do assessments. They do a threat profile on you to really understand where your threats are and define those out into a more um, targeted uh, set of responses for incident response. And then you get your remediations out of that to protect your organization, build your, your cyber stack out as far as the products that uh, fit your technology, your type of company uh, to mitigate any of those threat profiles or uh, weaknesses within your organization. And, you know, it's a little more difficult with a uh, uh, kind of high net worth people, or especially family offices, because sometimes high profile people uh, carry a lot of presence. Um, so if they're traveling a lot, it makes it a little more difficult, but it's not, um, it's not something that can't be done. There's ways that you can do it. And there's teams out there that specialize in that. Uh, that can help in those specific areas um, to make sure that, you know, you're doing low profile stuff or uh, certain activities done under um, uh, certain ways yeah. that uh, can't be masked uh, or linked back to the individual. So 
there are ways to do it. It's just, you know, like I said, there's a very uh, a coordinated plan that you have to kind of um, vet out. Yeah, I, I I experienced one. It was a, it was a long con, and uh, it <laughs> short story is it ended up me being kidnapped for about four hours. But that's another, that's another call. So, but it's all good. <laughs> that's not good. It's all good. Yeah. So and and stuff like this too. When an event like this happens on on you, uh, when it personally affects you, whether it's your company or an individual. Um, your stuff is being recycled and resold on the black market for a future attack. There's no doubt about it. Um, It's really scary to see what is out there. If you have any idea how to access the dark web and really access uh, uh, information that's not really publicly available on the regular Internet, it's really scary. Um, And this is where I I talk about uh, in my my little talk about uh, some of the tools that are available this is where OSINT technology, open source intelligence, uh, really comes into play because open source intelligence can tell you a whole ton of stuff that you wouldn't really, uh, really get in normal channels. But it, these tools allow deep dives into data that's out there readily accessible, available. So those tools can help organizations kind of curb what information's out there about them. And there are steps that you can take to get rid of that information, uh, to make sure that you're, um, kind of uh, at least controlling some of that to a degree. Um, but, you know, there's a, there's a whole area of deep dive in this um, that kind of needs to be managed at a, at a, um, a, a, a secured level uh, within the organization that you're uh, dealing with. Yeah, look, I want to elaborate on one point you made as well. You know, I, I think people underestimate if they are a small company, right? Um, well, I don't have a lot of power behind me, right? Or I don't have, you know, the right amount of money or the know-how in order to go and do that. I, I think that it's so incredibly important for people to put this at the highest level of priority, right? Especially if you're housing people's data. So if you're housing people's data, there needs to be certain controls that are in place. And and I would, to your point, right, go hire that in if, if you don't have that expertise uh, and, and bring it in-house uh, to help get it set up at least, right, to put the policies in place, to put the framework in place, uh, to put the right procedures in place. And, you know, even for companies like myself, we're, we're small now, but we're going to grow large. I think we're going to grow large very quickly. And I've already had the conversations with AWS, right? I already sat on the phone with the, the, the person who runs their entire um, health data uh, department. And, and we've had these conversations, right? How do we set up the right teams? How do we prepare as we start bringing people's data in and uh, getting the right support? How do, how, what, what, cause they have a lot of processes themselves in place, right? That you don't even have to pay for. They do a lot of, they do a lot of that work for you, especially if you have a certain business account. They'll do certain penetration tests for you, right? They'll, they'll work with you and put that stuff in place. So you've got the big, the big dogs out there, the Azures and the, and the Googles and the, and the Amazons. They have teams that are out there to help, uh, support even the smaller companies. So, you know, just a bit of research, uh, tap into some of us that whoever can give you some help in that direction. I'm out, I'm happy to help, uh, guide anyone who needs to know there and, uh, and just make some phone calls and get the right people in sitting down with you, uh, because it's so much easier to fix this up front than it is, uh, on the backside of it. Yeah. Avi, I see your question here. Um, let me just read through it real quick. So, um, Avi's question is, uh, when we talk about companies not having enough money to spend on cybersecurity, how much are they willing to spend on a per endpoint basis versus 
their ability to spend. How do we choose, uh, close the gap with uh, education regulation? So, you know, initially I'm just going to say that education is a huge um, cost curber, I guess is the best way to put it. The more education you can give your people uh, in your organization or, um, you know, around you about this um, would it dramatically decrease the cost of what you have to do to protect yourself and, and leave you open to um, uh, different things. To say that it's going to completely eliminate it, no, it won't. But you will definitely have a better security awareness um, and do things a little differently and a little more conscious uh, the way you do business and conduct your affairs um, uh, to help with that. Um, there will be a you know, a base cost as far as what you agree uh, to the organization, as far as what your threat profile is, um, what assets you need to protect, and the technology that's going to help you do that. Um, but even with the technology, because it changes so fast, you're going to have to stay on top of it because new technology just comes out and, and new t attacks are already th uh, thwarting um, technology that's already deployed. So there are many um, uh, ways that you can do this to help manage costs within organizations. The biggest thing is really having a, a cybersecurity consulting company that um, uh, can help you through this. And as times uh, uh, kind of progress into newer technology, at least have some kind of roadmap of redeployment of new technology and rolling into it after um, when things are kind of changing in the marketplace and, uh, um, you know, threats change. Because I'm going to tell you, in a three to five year cycle, I think you should be changing a lot of your cybersecurity stacks. Um, I think it's, it's, I mean, you're seeing very big names right now that are being breached because they haven't really gone back to patch things and they haven't really kind of, given the necessary babying uh, in a development sense that they need to. And this is where one of the ex uh, ex the executive orders that was released is actually calling for SBOMs. And I don't know if anybody knows what an SBOM is, but it's a software bill of materials because there's been such bad development out there or bad approaches to development in, um, you know, big name products. And, it's so badly done that they can't, when they, there's a breach, they have to know what's in the software so they can quickly identify the areas. And if it's reused code, uh, patented technology that they have to review in order to find the, the vulnerability. So this is all important. This comes into play when you get into an incident or a breach and you have an incident response and your development teams and everybody's kind of looking, picking apart this with, with your engineers trying to find where, where, where it went wrong. This is all important. This is why the executive order to ensure that SBOMs are now deployed or at least identified within um, uh, deployable software solutions uh, is, is going to be big. Um, you know, so these are areas that uh, are, are important for a lot of different reasons, and um, it helps the industry as a whole. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's my initial response to it. Okay, um, th thanks for the uh, response, Luke. Uh, I should mention that I'm also coming from a uh, cybersecurity uh, vendor standpoint, and we often hear that companies aren't willing to spend very much per endpoint for cybersecurity. And uh, I recall from your presentation that you were focused on, you know, agriculture and water systems, where um, in particular in agriculture, 
farmers aren't particularly concerned about cybersecurity. So I'm just wondering how you might have uh, educated them on that it's important and worth spending on. Yeah, so um, th- there's two approaches to that. One, um, you know, like I said, from a company protection uh, point of view, from technology within their uh, process, um, but you also have a physical component within the agriculture space as far as protecting uh, fields or growing space or different things like that that has to be observed too. So it's not just technology that you have to worry about. So th- there's going to be a basic uh, technology component that you're securing. Um, and, you know, sadly, cybersecurity is still considered an expense to most companies. So it's it's very bottom-fed uh uh, into it, and you know they don't like spending a lot of money on IT, and they spend less on IT uh, security. But when they get a breach, it's like, oh, we have to spend all this money, and they should have done it in in uh, healthy doses to to kind of um, you know curb that uh, big expense at, at an all uh, all at once expense. So when you're talking with them, you have to understand that, um, you know, cost is a, a definitely a concern and there are certain products out there that kind of fit within their budget, um, that still achieve the objective or at least dramatically reduce your, um, exposure. Um, but to completely mitigate it with just a, um, uh, you know, the cheap product versus the, 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 the premium product, um, you know, there's varying levels. And plus it also has to do with matching technology. Uh, within their process and within their supply chain and all the different uh, operational technology they have to make sure that that technology actually will will work. Uh, you know, there's cases that we've seen where they're deploying stuff, uh, technology that they uh, saw as the, the the next shiny object, and it really doesn't match their their older technology, and it's it's a it's a pain trying to uh, tell them that you spent this money and you can't even use the features or the different things that allow it to uh, to work. So there's a lot of discussion there, and I think it's misguidance from a lot of perspectives because they know they want to get secure, but they want to do it the cheapest way possible. And so when you have a managed approach uh, uh, to cybersecurity, I think it helps kind of uh, uh, manage that in a way that helps uh, manage the cost as well in deploying the, the right technology, the right cyber uh, technology, and the right endpoint um, protection. Okay, thank you. Hey, uh, uh, oh, I, guess I, I just had a basic question. Um, just if anybody knew, is there such a thing as like a cybersecurity newsletter or periodical for cybersecurity investors or people that would be on that side of it? And if there is, is it like basic enough for a layman to get into this what would you recommend uh, in terms of something like that um periodical newsletter about this yeah i think um there are a lot out there i think the problem is that sometimes depending on how it's written it's really made for people that are in the industry um and they don't really kind of translate it to common language that people are not in the space so sometimes the terms kind of throw people off and it's just too uh, technical for them to really understand it or terms that they're just not used to. But I think it's getting better. Um, so if you probably stick with like, uh, um, you know, some of the big 
names like, uh, you know, um, uh, I'm just trying to think uh, right off the top of my head, um, like CNET or things like that that are more for uh, public consumption than just industry-specific consumption, um, I think would be uh, pretty good. Yeah, dark reading is pretty good. Um, but that's again dark reading sometimes uh um it's made for more um people in that space but they do have some good writers sometimes that bring clarity to it so i mean you'd have to really look around i'll have to get a list and send it out to everybody of good uh good ones that uh, can provide a lot of Look, I just put one in there. Um, you know, this is kind of one of the top 10 rundowns of a lot of the, the uh, cyber uh, newsletters that are out there. People can look at it and see for themselves what, what works for them, what doesn't work for them. It's one of the one of the ones that's um, quite well known out there. Yeah, this is a list of 10. Might help. Yeah. Lauren, you can take a you grab that and, and throw that in your uh, out of the chat in the, into your um into your an email or something and mail yourself, or I can mail it to you, Lauren, if you want me to email it to you. I don't have your email address, but I'll find it. <laughs> so what's interesting, the, the link here, um, what's interesting, just kind of throwing this out there, um, it's kind of a little off topic, but it's the same thing um, in the macro sense. But you, what people need to realize is cybersecurity technology is the same around the world in a lot of aspects. There are some things that are different, um in certain countries but a lot of these products are used throughout the world and so that makes it even a bigger uh, uh reverse engineer it and use it and there's been talk of uh um even virus protection that's being bought by uh, uh nation states that they're uh concerned about um those nation states taking those uh, in reverse engineering and using as uh, attacks. So, you know, just throwing that out there is something that you need to understand is just the industry is not specific to just the U.S. It's it's worldwide. It's it's really very, uh, very closely similar throughout the world. Look. Um, I, I think we're done for the day, and I appreciate everybody coming. So thank you all who have been here. Mark? Lauren, you got a question? I can't hear you, Lauren, if you have a question. All right. Well, I'm signing off. I got uh, some meetings I have to get to. Thank you all. Appreciate your time. Thank you. And we'll see you at the next event. Appreciate it. Thanks, everyone. Take good care. Be well.